Alright, let me kick it off. Pat will be adding Lindsay as a co-host, I think we've got uh, most of the speakers up here. Good to see you, Lisa, how are you? Aaron, Aaron, Catherine. Hi. Morning, Mario. Hi, guys. So, um, I appreciate everyone being here. Um, Dr. Drew, thanks for helping us co-host this. We're bringing Lindsay up as well to help co-host. But um, it took a lot of preparation to make this happen. I think we had to reschedule it uh, a couple of times when we had urgent spaces come up. So I, appreciate so I appreciate everyone's patience. The goal of today's the goal space, of today's space is, to, is to, to cover questions, to cover from, questions from the audience. So audience, you can ask questions in the bottom right corner. I know this is going to get very, you know, it could get very polarizing, it could get political as well. And we'll try to cover all the points. We have people that have different theories around different questions, and you'll see a lot of the panelists disagree on many points. And the purpose is use the... The lack of censorship that exists on Twitter right now to answer as many questions as we can openly, transparently. So make sure you ask your questions in the bottom right corner. For the panelists, just please mute your mic when you're not speaking. Yeah, I think Dr. Drew, I think if he mutes his mic, it might help with some of your echo, Mario. Ah, okay, yeah. It could be for you Actually, that didn't help. You're still a little echoey. Is it still echoey now or not, Ed? Just a little bit. I mean, it's not terrible. Okay. Is it better okay. now? Or is it no? better now or not? Yeah, it's a lot better. Oh, okay, cool. I just had to move it closer to right, my cool, mouth. I right, cool, appreciate so it, man. I'm so I'm going to kick it off with some and questions. And Drew will, um, probably, and Drew will probably lead a lot of the conversation. He jumped into the space two days ago as well, an impromptu space for the Fauci file drop. And he led the conversation, answered a lot of questions for us as well. But I'll kick it off with some general questions. And, and for any panelists that want to answer the question, feel free to unmute and speak anytime. We'll just put your hand up uh, as a request to speak, and we can give you the mic. At any time. At any time. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Mario, just a housekeeping item. The uh, link to this, uh, which I just shared on Twitter, now says that this is at Jan January 3rd at 11.15 a.m. So I don't know if that's going to con confuse people about the timing of this and, and make people not jump on thinking that it's not today. So I'm not sure how the date and time changed on the link, but you may want to so, uh, yeah, so, fix so, that. So, this first question I have is my echo ongoing, Aaron? <clears throat> Your audio is okay. It's, it's not okay. great, but it's I'll, good enough. I'll, I'll, I'll try to fix it. I'll try to um, fix it. So, while, um, we're, doing so space, while we're doing the space, I'll fix my audio. Uh, in the meantime, uh, in the meantime uh, yeah, so, so, the uh, yeah, so, so the other space crashed, um, and that's um, why we had to create a new one. So that's the um, issue so there. Unfortunately, we see text. Lindsay just came up on stage. Lindsay, good to have you. So I'm going to fix the mic. But in the meantime, yes. So Aaron, people should be able to see that my space is the space has started um, and if they're um, confused, by the, they're confused by the other one the team is checking DMs comments. and comments but to tell them. but it is a technical glitch we can't do much about unfortunately okay so I'm going to so kick it off in the meantime while I fix my audio I'll fix my audio while the other panelists are speaking so I apologize for all the listeners for the echo surgically but maybe I'll ask the first question and Drew you can take it over while I fix the mic if that's okay doctor but the first question that I have doctor maybe to kick it off is just getting different perspectives from the panelists about the vaccines and that'll be the main one thoughts on the vaccines misconceptions about the vaccines or they believe our misconceptions that they want 
to bring up so we can start discussing them. And in the meantime, I'll fix my mic and I'll start reading out questions from the audience. So, Dr. Drew, do you want to kick it off? Thank you. Mario, I'm, I'm going to humbly step one level above that because I do believe those issues will come up every time somebody speaks and try to reach a consensus uh, on what it is we are doing here. What, what are we doing? And for those of us that are physicians, what we are trying to do, well, first of all, I want to find the things we absolutely agree upon. And I think starting with those of us that are physicians, what we are doing here is trying to make the best decision for our patients, period. All physicians, all doctors, that is our goal. That is what we are doing. The problem is there is confusion around what that is, what the signals are telling us. I can only tell you, by the way, any, as, as panelists come up and speak, I wish they would give it just a little sketch on their academic credentials because it is really important that people are listening to us understand our varying backgrounds. Myself, I've been a physician for 40 years. I'm trained as, as an internist. I had leadership positions in a psychiatric hospital and a medical hospital for many, many years. I'm assistant clinical professor of medicine, assistant clinical professor of psychiatry, double board certified and a fellow with the American College of Physicians. So just little sketches like that I think would be helpful. So we agree that we are here to help do the best thing for our patients. I think that, and what I'm doing is what I've always done is a new therapeutic comes along or a new intervention for my patients. I read the literature. I try to make the best decision for the patients. I make my recommendations and I help the patient with informed consent. The problem today and what's unusual today is suddenly we're having difficulty reaching a consensus or even having conversation about certain aspects of this vaccine, all the while with our regulatory agencies pushing extremely hard in ways that are hard to understand, and then no dialogue, no discourse, no, no public conversation about what it is we are doing here. So I am finding it extremely difficult to even give informed consent to certain age groups. I do believe I know what I'm doing over the age of 75. I think I know what I'm doing over the age of 65 in terms of recommending the vaccine and boosters. But as things get into the younger age groups, it gets quite a bit more murky. Now, the next issue I was hoping to sort of uh, put a little light on in terms of areas where we agree. Steve, you ran a Twitter spaces yesterday and you and Dr. Dunn had an interesting conversation that I unfortunately couldn't really listen to. But there was a a point that you were trying to arrive at, and I'm not sure if you got to a consensus on just a simple question, which is, is the vaccine capable of killing our patients? Steve, did you guys reach a consensus on that? Uh, no, I don't think that we did. Um, uh, uh, so I think that's a, it's a great question to start off with because we can talk about all of the facts that support that. And, and certainly that, um, that may get us to some agreement. You know, maybe everybody agrees that the vaccines uh, can kill people, and then it's just a, a question of what that number is. And I think that would be probably the most important thing uh, to talk about. And if we can just get past that one question uh, here, we'd have accomplished something really remarkable. I, I completely agree. And then, Dr. Dunn, you were on the other side with Steve, and, and I didn't quite get your opinion. The question he was asking us today that I thought was a good one was, when we see excess mortality, say, within 20 days of vaccine uh, administration, what, are, what is that? What are we seeing? What do we agree we are seeing in that group of excess mortality or any mortality in the 20 days after vaccine therapy? 
Dr. Dunn. I saw her there. Well, maybe Steve can speak on her behalf since she was talking to you. Can you remember what she was, was saying to you? Um, well, she didn't uh, admit anything. She didn't concede any point. Um, she wasn't able to respond to any of the evidence that I suggested. She wasn't familiar with the Schwab paper. Um, and so um, she didn't have any data uh, backing any position that she had. Is there someone else in our panel that would like to respond to Steve's question, which was essentially the, the, the fine point on the question is, if you administer a vaccine and somebody dies within 20 days, what percentage of those deaths do we imagine or do we suspect is a direct result of vaccine therapy? Okay, I wonder if any hands up for that. Steve, do you see anybody that you'd like to address that question to? Uh, well, if anyone uh, raises their hand on that, the, the number from the Schwab study was at least 20%. And they didn't look at, at all uh, the, the patients to determine causality. They just looked at 20% of them and and discovered that, yes, there was causality in the 20% that they could stand behind. So 20% was the minimum. And so if people have actual data showing that it's it's less than 20% um, for, for people who have been autopsied after um, they die and they've been vaccinated and you take a random sampling of patients, if anybody has any data that is different than at least 20%, um, they should speak now. Or, or, or if you believe it's impossible for the vaccine to, to actually induce demise, uh, then my question would be, well, what are the adverse, what's the range of adverse events? And these are the basic questions we have to agree upon. Uh, Dr. Corey, do you do you agree with this? Do you know what some opposing opinions might be? There, they seem to be no one coming up or to uh, to help us. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to stick to this one overall theme. I mean, there is so much data from so many different sources showing rises in deaths at various time periods. There's in the first few days, right? There's a five month peak. And overall society-wide uh, increases in mortality. And, and that, I don't, I have any... Is it me, Dr. Is it Drew, me? is it me, or, Dr. Is, he Drew, is, it me or is he dropping out? It's dropping out. Yeah, Dr. Corey, your, your, your internet... Dr. Corey, yeah. you're, Dr. Corey you're, 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 you're glitchy. Is your connection okay. bad? I'm not sure how well I'll be able to participate today. I'm in a spot with really poor internet, so I'll just stand by. Yeah, it's... I know what he's getting at, which is that we're going, which is on to the next topic, which is that of excess mortality overall. And what is in that population of, of folks that are dying is that vaccine is it covid is it covid I'll, I'll, plus I don't vaccine? know if you guys is can hear me lockdown? i can make is one more all... attempt can you hear me go ahead yes here here oh, no! oh, no! how was that doctor oh, no! oh, let me let me dr Corey, your, your mic is pretty best i've just removed dr Corey now so go ahead, so go ahead drew dr. well i was saying he was, he was jumping into another topic and, and it's one we need to get to which is uh, excess mortality overall, which is up in an extraordinary way. And one of, one of my questions is not, is that happening or what's in it? Because we don't know. Is that 
COVID? Is it COVID plus vaccine? Is it vaccine? Is it lockdown? Is it some combination of those four or all four together contributing to that? But the really crazy question to me is, why isn't this an international emergency to answer that question? And my fear is because it requires raising the possibility of problems with the vaccine, people are afraid to ask the question. Dr. Cariotti, I want to go to you. You've had the misfortune of raising questions, and uh, you can talk about the consequences. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Drew. So my name is Aaron Cariotti, and up until December of last year, I had spent my entire career as a full professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine, uh, where I wore two hats. One was as a professor in the Department of Psychiatry, which is my medical specialty. Now, Dr. Drew, just quickly, you've got your mic uh, unmuted. Drew. So if you can mute, your, your mic would be great. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead to Aaron. I, I think Andrew needs to mute as well. Um, and my other hat was I directed the medical ethics program at the university. I directed uh, the medical ethics committee at the California Department of State Hospitals. And I helped the entire University of California system uh, draft its pandemic policies up until the vaccine mandate, where uh, the, the committee that I was on of critical care physicians and medical ethicists uh, was not consulted, which I found strange. And I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal last year arguing that the vaccine mandates at universities, which were the first institutions to initiate vaccine mandates, were I wasn't at that point talking about safety and efficacy issues because it was very early in the mass vaccination campaign and I was waiting on more data. But I was making an ethical argument that these mandates violated the principle of free and informed consent. And the university went ahead with their vaccine mandate um, anyways, against my better judgment. And I ended up challenging that vaccine mandate in federal court on constitutional grounds, arguing that it violated our equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment. And before that case was decided in court, the university basically fired me as quickly as they could. They placed me on so-called investigatory leave, and then a month later on unpaid suspension, and a month after that, they, they fired me. So that was my experience just asking uh, ethical questions and attempting to challenge that particular policy on legal grounds. As to the question of whether the vaccines kill some people, I think at this point it would be impossible to argue that, um, that no one has been killed as a result of taking this vaccine. And we can just begin with the data on myocarditis, which was one of the first safety signals in VAERS. And VAERS is not designed to establish causality. It's designed to pick up signals that require further investigation. But the CDC did investigate that safety signal and concluded that there was an, not only an elevated risk of myocarditis in men, particularly younger men, but that many of those reports in VAERS of uh, cardiac-related death were likely due to the vaccine. So we have that we have that data point on myocarditis, which in many cases can be fatal, and uh, and then we have autopsy data 
now, which is going to be the gold standard in terms of establishing cause of death. We have autopsy data demonstrating that various um, thrombotic and clot related medical issues from pulmonary embolism, which is where you get a clot in your leg that goes to your lungs, to um, cardiac related uh, and stroke related um, problems due to blood clotting, to other what we call coagulopathies, which are sort of systemic problems related to blood clots. And that, that this is contributed. Yeah. I would say that I, that's another thing I think we could all agree upon, that there is a signal and this signal involves these pathologies that you bring up. But there has been no rush or even no attempt that I can see to right. tease out, is this truly vaccine? Is it truly COVID? Is it COVID plus vaccine, which is pretty much everybody now because everyone's had COVID and vaccine. And so is that the combination or is it COVID vaccine plus booster that's causing the problem? Is it lockdown and lack of screening that we no one is answering that question in a prospective manner? Why? That's one of my questions. What is going on here? I, all, all I'm doing as a physician is what I always do. I look at the data. I recommend to my patients. And then when you have widespread distribution of a therapeutic, you discover new things. And you know what we do then? We pause we talk to our peers, we do new investigative challenges of the therapeutics, and then we decide how to refine what it is we're doing. There seems to be no willingness to even discuss pausing, uh, which is just so astonishing to me. It's so contrary to everything in yeah. medicine as it's always be done, going done. Do you have a theory what is going on here? I, I do have a theory, and I, I'll, I'll say this one thing, and then it looks like several people have their hands up, so I'll step aside uh, after this remark. But I think this relates, again, to that issue of informed consent, that our public health authorities decided very early in the pandemic, starting with lockdowns and then continuing uh, during the mass vaccination campaign, they started with an approach that I think was fundamentally unsound. Instead of saying, okay, we have to take complicated and evolving uh, medical information and data and try to translate it into a language that ordinary people can understand and communicate to them what's going on and the risks and benefits of various interventions so that they can make informed decisions for themselves and their families. That would have been a good, sound public health policy. Instead of doing that, our public health authorities began with a behavior that they wanted everyone to engage in. Everyone stay at home. Everyone wear a mask. Everyone stay six feet apart a needle in every arm, whatever. So the behavioral outcome or conclusion was predetermined in advance. And then the information given to the public was only the information that public health authorities believed would be conducive to nudging or eventually with mandates, forcing people to engage in that particular behavioral outcome, right? And so they had, the public health authorities had already doubled and tripled down on a needle in every arm and insisted that the vaccine in a blanket way, that the vaccine was safe and effective for everyone. And then when data started emerging that um, efficacy declined fairly rapidly over time and with new variants and safety signals started flying up and, and many of those started being uh, confirmed, or at least uh, the data suggested that they were uh, contributory. Then it was very hard at that point for the public health authorities to walk back what they had already said and what they had already done. And particularly when 
when public health recommendations from the CDC resulted in institutional policies where people like me literally lost our jobs, right? Uh, then it was, uh, you know, I think at that point, the, the issue had become polarized. The public health authorities were extremely reluctant to admit that they may have made a mistake. And so then they, you know, we got into a mode of suppressing information that would call into question those policies. And just prime example from earlier this year, the CDC stopped publishing its data on hospitalizations, deaths, and COVID cases, and and the, uh, at least much of its data. And when the New York Times asked them, why did you do this? The CDC spokesperson said, we didn't want to increase vaccine hesitancy, right? Which suggests that we're basically withholding information because it may undermine the recommendations or the policies that we've endorsed and that, you know, we're not willing to reconsider. Aaron, well, let's, I've let's, got, uh, sorry, go ahead, I've just got a quick question for Aaron. First, is my audio okay, Aaron, or is it still crappy? Uh, it's, it's a little it's, fuzzy in the background, but I can hear you, Mario. Now it's less echoey and more uh, white noise behind you. Okay, I'll, I'll figure out the white noise afterwards. But Aaron, did you, can you just confirm that there, that was confirmed that CDC uh, did not disclose the full numbers of people? Was it the deaths from vaccines? Or what was it exactly that wasn't disclosed in full? So uh, th- there were several COVID metrics, uh, particularly hospitalizations and deaths, that they either withheld or that they they slow walked. There was a very long delay between when they had it in publishable form and when it was released to the public. Um, the New York Times wrote this up, I want to say in May of this year. Um, so maybe somebody could go online and find that and post it, uh, post it here. But um, the CDC did not deny that they had done this. And, and in fact, the reason that they gave, again, was we don't want to increase vaccine hesitancy, which suggests that the information they were withholding uh, might have caused the public to reconsider, because that was that was right around the time, Mario, when we started seeing more and more vaccinated people being hospitalized, more and more vaccinated people dying. And so, you know, the short lived efficacy of the vaccines, which supported the pandemic of the unvaccinated meme. Uh, at, you know, within a couple of months, we started seeing uh, that whole trend shift. And that's right around the time where the CDC started being less transparent with their data. Let's, let, let's get let's get another opinion up here. Dr. Gu has his hand up and he has it. I hope will help us out on the other side. Dr. Gu, go right ahead. Perfect. Thanks, Dr. Drew. So um, a little bit about my background, um, graduated from Stanford and Duke Medical School did general surgery residency at Vanderbilt and have since become a physician entrepreneur, uh, CEO of a startup company that owns several clinics uh, across the country. Um, but with regards to the question about, you know, COVID vaccines and the side effects, I just want to say I, I'm, I've been pretty much middle of the road when it comes to COVID. I see on the political side, the, there's an extreme left and extreme right who have kind of twisted narratives, you know, around COVID-19. Um, but my middle of the road approach has always been in the, in the very beginning when they first came up with the vaccine, I thought the process was you know, much faster than I expected. And so there was a little bit of skepticism that I had as a physician, like the first few days when they rolled out the vaccine, because it was a new technology. Who knows if it you know, works or not? What are the side effects, et cetera? Um, but since then, from everything I've read in the literature, um, you know, seen with my own patients in, in the various clinics, 
Um, all the statistics that I've seen is that the side effects, while they do exist, you know, like anaphylaxis, myocarditis, they're extremely low in probability and chance um, compared to all those who benefited from the vaccines. And so I just want to. So, so let's, you know, let's, zero, let's drill in on that a little bit, because the, so you and I would agree that over age 75 risk reward definitely comes down in favor of vaccine and boosting. And let's, let's just pause it over over 65. Steve Kirsch will disagree sure. with us. He will say that we're seeing adverse events. We just don't recognize them because old people get sick. We only recognize the outside events when it's happening spontaneously in people where we don't expect it. And you're saying in the sort of young male, which is really the group that we're most concerned about, you're not seeing any signals clinically. I'm going to say I've seen a lot. Now, no one has died, but I, but people are getting ablations and people are in heart failure. And I've seen some extraordinary up upending of lives, clearly vaccine related, clearly. Well, maybe vaccine plus COVID. It's hard to hard to t- tease out, but definitely in proximity to COVID. You're saying you haven't seen that clinically. I haven't seen that clinically, and I just want to say every procedure, every vaccine, whether it's a flu vaccine, tetanus shot, COVID vaccine, everything yeah. comes with yeah. a small amount of risk. Yes, you know, like, yes. Look, and, just and, walking in your office, Dr. Gu, don't walk in right, my right. office. Right, exactly. There's a risk. Yeah, Nothing in life is, is without risk. Um, <clears throat> right. And, and these things, I'm not denying that these things don't yeah. happen. I'm just saying, like, can we consider the, the probability of it occurring versus the benefit. You know, as let physicians, me, let me always ask, have to weigh that. I, hang on a second. I want to ask a specific question. And Aaron Cariotti, I'm probably going to have you ring in on this because this is one of the things that's really troubling me. What is the ethical difference between allowing a 35 to become a 35 year old healthy male to become exposed to an infecting agent that we know is in the community and have a rough go of it versus taking that healthy male and increasing the probability of making him sick by virtue of something we do to him. Do you understand what I'm asking? Is there an ethical difference between the normal course of biological processes and then we help and treat and, you know, deal with the consequences versus us actively contributing in a, in a, in a potentially deleterious outcome. So I think the answer, I think, I think the answer to that question depends on the patient and the patient's risk tolerance, which is why this principle of informed consent is so important and which is why under conditions of uncertainty and under conditions that are, let's say, debatable, right, do the risks of the vaccine in this particular patient, this particular patient population uh, outweigh the potential benefits or vice versa, we can obviously debate that. And I have my own views on that. Um, as time has gone on, I've become more and more wary and more and more concerned about the vaccine risks. But going back to the principle of informed consent, let's tell the patient what we know, what we don't know. And that was never done. We, th- th- there was never any admission in the early vaccine rollout. Well, Aaron, the Aaron fact- I, will, I would even posit that as of next week in the state of California, it's against the law. You have to. You That's have right. To, you have to actually <laughs> yeah. issue. You have to actually stay with the standard of care. So if this were 1995, I'd have to say, yes, you're a heroin addict, but when you leave the ER, you need 90 Vicodin. That's the standard of care. This is the same kind of thinking that uh, gives us AB 2098, but I digress. That's right. We could talk about AB 2098 later. I'm actually part of a lawsuit challenging that uh, in federal court as well. So, um, but set that aside for the moment. You know, I think under conditions of uncertainty, you have to let the patient decide which risk they're more comfortable 
with taking. For the doctor's part, the doctor has to err on the side of minimizing the risks that I am doing to the patient. That's the doc- doctor's ethical responsibility. So if the doctor's, you know, has to lean in one direction or another, I think the doctor has to lean toward uh, um, not toward, intervening. Towards right? caution. Toward, towards it, caution. Towards yeah, do caution. no harm. That's, do no harm is exactly. the number one thing. Dr. Gu, do you exactly. agree or disagree? And then we're going to go to Pierre Corey because I see his back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When it comes to informed consent, I think I'm in agreement with a lot of you. I've yeah. had patients who told me that they don't want to get vaccinated to COVID. And <laughs> after explaining the risks and the benefits, if they still decide, hey, I don't want to get vaccinated, I still give them the best quality of care possible. That's their informed decision. And yeah. I think we always have to respect that. And um, one maybe one casualty of the COVID-19 pandemic is the principle of COVID, uh, informed consent Oh got a God. little bit shattered. And I, I oh my like God. that. And then don't you think it's odd then that our regulatory agencies are pushing against informed consent? I mean, like literally pushing us against that. It's just, it's odd. It's very odd. Right. Dr. Yeah, Cor- I, Dr. I, I Corey. Agree. Dr. Corey. Well, it seems we have agree- reached our first agreement. agreement. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, we, Mario we and we Dr. Agree. Drew, you yeah. succeeded no, there. No, now two I'll things. Two things. Two things, Aaron. We, we also agree that we're just trying to do what's best for our patients. All the physicians right. are just trying to do that. And I do you I know you you, Aaron, made it built a case for there being some sort of, um, you know, saving face type uh, psychology operating with the public health official. But I, too, believe they're trying to do the right thing, but they've been biased by exactly what you're talking about. Dr. Corey. Yeah, I, I mean, I just want to put this discussion in, in, in even bigger context, right? So these Twitter spaces are now happening because suddenly there's, um, you know, uh, a public space where now science can be debated, right? We have to recognize how unique that is, right? Three years into this, after massive censorship on almost every channel or media sphere, whether it's major media, medical journals, um, you know, now we have a place to talk. The, the thing that the way I interpret all of the divergence in opinions on data is that we're all suffering from information asymmetry due to this massive censorship. This is the major topic, right? So this agreed, agreed, a thousand percent censorship leads to many different opinions being formed. And the, the, the thing is, is the even greater context is you have to look at the history of suppression of adverse vaccine data starting hundreds of years ago. If you read about the smallpox uh, vaccination, that was majorly suppressed. Oral polio, majorly suppressed. Gardasil, the MMR and autism, we know there's on record, they destroyed adverse event data. So if you think about where we are in COVID and there are questions about, is this safe or is it not? You can't do that without understanding the context of the massive power of the pharmaceutical industry to suppress adverse events. And they, they've never had more power to suppress that than now because of really unprecedented, consolidated control of media and, I have to say, medical journals. These are things I didn't know two years ago. What I've learned about the medical journals, how they have selectively published only favorable data, which many of it is even questionable, um, and they've suppressed all other adverse events. And what Jeffrey Tucker said at the beginning is there are enough signals to at least have an open, formal assessment of these signals. Yet that hasn't happened. In fact, what you've seen is constant dismissals. Anytime someone brings up these curious de- death rates that are spiking suddenly in 2021, asking for an explanation, it's dismissed. 
and it's considered uncredible, and there's been no concerted formal regulatory agency. And there's a reason for that. We are under complete regulatory capture by the pharmaceutical industry. And the data that I put forth to that, if you look at any policy issued since the beginning, with the exception of a temporary approval of hydroxychloroquine, every other policy was literally written in the interest of the pharmaceutical industry and vaccination industry. And so we're really fighting against massive censorship. And, and what, what, the, what the crazy thing is with the censorship is how successful it is given the mountains of data. So this question, can these vaccines kill? Of course they can kill, and they are. We have, if you look at a totality of evidence from many different sources, from massive rises in stillbirths to the life insurance data, which is being roundly ignored, even though that call has gone out, we have an unprecedented rise. And when I say unprecedented, a 10% rise in year-to-year mortality in working-age Americans is considered a one-in-200-year event. You have CEOs of life insurance companies who are talking about, in 2021, increases of 40%. No credible explanation for, is for this. And then you have other data analyses which show that most of the excess mortality in 2020 was of respiratory causes. Suddenly, this virus causes nothing but cardiovascular demise in 2021 in young people as the variants get milder. And I've heard no credible explanation for why that is. And the amount of data showing that is immense. I mean, and I, let I, me let me Pierre, let me just jump in and say that again. The, the question that needs to be answered is not whether that's happening. I think there's pretty reasonable consensus that something is going on internationally. Is it the vaccine? Is it the booster? Is it COVID? Is it COVID plus vaccine? Is it lockdown? Is it lockdown COVID vaccine? All of the above. And why do you think there's not a rush internationally? UK is sort of moving this direction to answer that question. Just tease that out. Just tease that one issue out. What do we think is the predominant influence in this thing we are definitely seeing, which is excess mortality at all costs? Uh, I'll let you finish the point, Pierre. I'd love love Dr. Gu's response to that as well, just to balance it out. Go ahead, Pierre. You want me to just answer? From my opinion, what I've seen throughout the pandemic is the lack of truth tellers is because the desire to remain employed and keep your your pers- your reputation and career intact has been so overwhelming. There are so few have been willing to challenge the narrative or to talk right. about what uh, so, you know. So that's, that's the crazy. And, and they no, get yeah. punished. I am outside and, and, the system I'm, right now in private yep. practice because. Yep simply wanted to provide data that I saw that was credible and no one wants to hear. And anyone who's right. done that has got attacked. And Aaron Kayati had the same experience. And, and this is something we established on Monday in the Twitter spaces, which was this new information that most physicians are employees and are scared of losing their job. Dr. Gu. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with uh, some of the sentiments here that there was a culture of, I don't know if I would call it censorship, but, you know, a culture of fear around uh, straying away from what the mainstream narrative was around COVID. I mean, there's no denying that. Um, at the same time, I do want to address some of the points about the myocarditis and, and younger patients um, and the and the um, adverse side effects of the vaccines. Um, if you look at the data objectively and all the literature, I just haven't seen the evidence that these side effects are overwhelming and that the risks outweigh the benefits of the vaccine. And, and that's a question I want to have, you know, for those of you who may not agree with me, which is totally fine. Um, do you really believe that the risks of the COVID vaccines outweigh the benefits to our patients? And in my that's- opinion, I think the benefits do outweigh the risks, 
I'm not saying that's, that's what, zero. That, that's what I obsess about every day. And, and we can disagree on that. And you can advise your patients accordingly. That's, that's how we practice medicine. Right. But the fact that that is not being answered in a prospective way is astonishing to me. It is. Astonishing. It is. It is being answered? How? Yes. Okay. Um, well, for the, the problem is, of course, these, these studies are not being done in the United States of America. Uh, in fact, uh, UCSF professor Vinay Prasad uh, complained about that when he talked about the Thailand study. The Thailand study was a prospective study. Can I just make another point on the issue of data transparency? So under can, federal hey, law, hey, the Aaron, can I, can I finish? vaccine and, was Aaron, authorized. The federal government. I don't think he can hear. I don't think he can one hear. Second, Steve. One second, Aaron. Point of order. Let, let's get Steve's oh. finish, then we'll go to you, Aaron. Yeah, Aaron, you can't hear. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron, you can't hear Steve. So I'm going to bring you down and bring you back up. Uh, to Sorry to interrupt. No, all good. All good. Go ahead, Steve. Steve, yeah. Steve go ahead. Um, so in the the, the, the Th- Thailand, they actually did a prospective study. So I'm I'm confused when when uh, Dr. Gu says that there's no data. The Thailand study was off the charts. The Thailand study looked and and followed 301 teenagers aged 13 to 18. It's published in, um, um, I think it's published in a, a peer-reviewed journal, but um, if not, it was uh, it was definitely highly respected because it was a prospective trial that was extremely well done. Uh, Vinay Prasad looked at it, and he's he's a stickler for details, and and he was extremely impressed with this trial. And he was he mentioned uh, how disappointed he was that no such trial exists in the United States because we don't want to know. But what that Thailand study showed prospectively is that the kids were healthy before and that one out of 29 boys developed myocarditis. One out of 29 teenage boys developed myocarditis. So that's the risk. And the other risk is that almost 30%, it was like 29% and change, had uh, expressed cardiac um, damage indicator, so higher troponins and so forth that you should never see in, in a vaccine. Right, and right. So, this, and the benefit, but the benefit, you know, that's what we're gonna we, ask we talk about, about the benefit. There's yeah. no benefit. There yeah, well, is the no, okay. you know, like yes. there's Steve. only one, one, hang on, there's only one death per million in, in that age group. And so to see a benefit, like how are they even going to show that? Right. So so that's exactly the question that needs to be answered. But, uh, Dr. Gu, we're going to go back to you. And, and that's sort of what's troubling me is when, when before before the present moment, when a young male developed myocarditis, that was an overwhelming medical emergency that needed profound attention and careful follow up. Now, I do know there's some data that suggests that Vaccine-related myocarditis may not be as bad as viral myocarditis, though there is data disputing that. But the question is exactly, I, I, wanted, I want your opinion on this, exactly what's the, let's say we have a 27-year-old male. Let's, let's posit that his risk of uh, myocarditis, let's say it's one in 300. Let's say there was only one case of myocarditis in that group in, in um, I think it was, was a patent in Thailand. The question is, that that 27-year-old has a 0.00001% chance of adverse events from COVID. And people will say, oh, but long COVID. I, l- listen, I, I had long COVID myself. I've seen lots of long COVID. 
it, it resolved. It's like every other serious illness. When people come out of the ICU, they're sick for a while, quite a while sometimes. And yes, many times adults, you can actually see brain shrinkage on their CT scans after any serious illness, and they remit, they, rec- they go back to normal. So if the risk of really serious events is approaching, let's say one in 100,000 for sake of argument, as opposed to one in a million, if one in 300 get myocarditis, isn't that of concern? If those data is real, or maybe that data is just not real, Dr. Gu. Yeah, so a quick answer to your question. Um, I think that's where informed consent really comes into play. So if the patient understands the benefits and the risks based on the best available data and they still decide to, you know, get vaccinated or not get vaccinated, that's up to the patient. It's our job as physicians to give them our best understanding based on, you know, the data and the literature and the science as to what's the, you know, benefit to risk ratio for the patient. And then when it comes to the studies, I would just say, you know, as all of us learned in medical school, you can find an article supporting your position if you search hard enough. Just like a, a quote from the Bible. You well, know, you can find but, but I, I agree with you. I agree you, with you, you wholeheartedly. Want. But let's say, but do you at least agree that the risk to a 27-year-old male is 0.0001-ish for, from the illness? From the illness? So I, I would have to kind of do another you know, real deep dive into the latest research into that and see what the actual statistics is. I don't know that off the top of my head. Um, so, you know, I, I can kind of Let, your word let's, do it, this, but, let's do this. Um, let's do this. Let's I see a cardi Anish with his hand up, the cardiologist. Let's see what, let's see what the cardiological community is seeing or concerned about. Anish. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Drew. Um, I, you know, there's no, there's no question that, um, that there is a rate of vaccine myocarditis that is significant. And, uh, the, uh, I've been disappointed by the um, uh, general approach from many public health figures as well as the CDC that have kind of tried to whitewash this as uh, being uh, mild. Um, you know, myocarditis prior to the pandemic was uh, never would be considered mild. You have crushing, you have, you generally have acute chest pain. You, you go to the ER. Hello, can you hear me? We're good. I got you. Yep. But, okay. but you, yeah, you, it was it was a, a dire emergency. Yeah. When, when so, my kids got viral illnesses when they were young, young adolescent, young adults. Yeah. The thing I concern, I always worried about myocarditis because that is a life changing right. event, life altering event. Now right. I'll admit what I'm seeing clinically. You tell me if you're seeing this as well. I am not seeing progressive cardiomyopathy so much. I am seeing lots of extraordinary, primarily supraventricular arrhythmias, high rates, extraordinarily high rates that are unusual for SVTs of any type. Is that yeah, you no. too? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think myocarditis is uh, the the uh, uh, dysautonomia, if you will, um, mm-hmm. that is seen after COVID as well. Uh, by the way, um, has you know is is clearly uh, uh, seen a fair amount after the uh, vaccine as well. Now, fair amount means what? It's not one in ten, uh, but certainly you know one in a one one in a few thousand, etc. Like you know, there's enough there's enough folks that are having tachycardia, uh, PVCs, SVTs. Um, that's that's probably the most common thing that I've seen after. Uh, how many of those? How many of those need ablation or medical therapy? I, I haven't had any that have needed uh, ablations. Um, the vast majority of them, whether related to the vaccine or post-viral, post-severe post-viral, um, are 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 almost all um, self-limited and do get better um, with time. There are so it is it is somewhat case reportable uh, that you see these cases, and it's reported in the New England Journal. Um, you know, or two cases of severe vaccine-induced myocarditis that resulted in severe cardiomyopathy. One patient, one of those patients actually died. The other had a biopsy, was in the ICU on pressors, you know, a pretty severe illness. 
Um, so I think the general sense is, uh, I think from the cardiology community, is that, that yes, you're, getting, you're seeing lots of dysautonomia. Um, uh, that is, it is self-limited. It is not something usually that persists over a significant period of time. Um, um, and, uh, but, and the same thing applies for, uh, for COVID. But, but just to push back just a little bit uh, to this idea uh, for Dr. Gu, it seems, it seems highly credible, uh, at least based on real-world observation from a, from a busy cardiologist, as well as based on multiple, multiple, multiple different data sets, starting in April 2021 with the Israeli data, uh, as well as the, as well as the as well as the DoD data from us from the U.S. Right. So this isn't just one cherry picked trial, uh, one cherry picked study about myocarditis rate. This is a vast array of data from multiple different countries, um, uh, us uh, as well, that suggests that the rates of vaccine, specifically mRNA uh, vaccine myocarditis, you know, are 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 not small. They're talk, we're talking about rates of one in three thousand, one in five thousand, one in seven thousand, which is not small when you're talking about a recommendation to vaccinate every single person over the age of uh, you know over the age of twelve or what have you. By the way, those rates I'm talking about are are peak rates in sixteen to seventeen year olds, that the young men category that seem to be at highest risk, especially after the Moderna the Moderna vaccine. So. So anyway, but, but again, I, I think, weight, weight against weight against the actual risk of the illness. That, that's yeah, no, the part that, that's, that's important. And that's what I was just going to say. I think it, it is it is it, it is. I, I mean, it's fairly credible, and I have trouble believing that when you have a rate of myocarditis of one in three thousand, one in five thousand, one in seven thousand. You know, some people say that it may be lower. That time myocarditis study is subclinical myocarditis, and there's some. You know, that, that's another debate about subclinical myocarditis, which I won't get into. But simply just talking about clinical myocarditis, okay, it seems unlikely that a healthy young man who's 17 years old is going to have more than a 1 in 5,000, 1 in 6,000 risk of being hospitalized from getting COVID, all right? Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's relatively clear from April 2021 that we should have recognized the signal of, of, um, of, of significant clinical myocarditis in young men. And we should have probably reacted in, a, in, 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 in some ways to that signal by, you know, making sure we were doing proper informed consent, number one, or even as some many other countries did say, hey, look, you know what, unless there's something mitigate, unless there's something specific mitigating about you that makes you very high risk, we should probably not give you the Moderna vaccine, which is three times the mRNA dose of the Pfizer vaccine. So there were lots of things to do that for some reason we didn't do because we were, too, we were so scared to say anything against the vaccine. And again, I'm speaking as somebody that ran a vaccine clinic that, you know, I, I put, I'm pretty sure there aren't that many cardiologists that put, you know, directly put more vaccines in people's arms. So I'm not some, you know, massive vaccine skeptic. You know, I had a high risk population and I ran a vaccine clinic for many, many months when the vaccines became available. But, but we clearly got some things uh, wrong um, and, uh, and that's unfortunate. Yes, and I so, just wanted to make a, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I just make a quick uh, comment on that. When we look at these studies, I think it's really important, and, and this especially goes for those who aren't physicians or aren't um, as you know well-trained in science too, is we need to look at the total number of patients in these studies. That gives the power of the study. So the things that I like to go with are the ones that have you know maybe upwards of 100, 1,000, 200,000 patients in the New England Journal, like randomized controlled trials that takes a look at the incidence of myocarditis, the incidence of anaphylaxis, the incidence of all these risks that um, you guys are talking about, weighed against the benefits. Um, and if you look at the biggest and largest randomized controlled trials, it shows that the risks are really, really small compared to the benefit. 
Um, and that's just a comment I want to put out there because I know there's you can no, find no, studies but, that tell you, you no, know, no, no, whatever but, you want. Yeah, I'd Dr. Like, Gu, I'll just say that I'll just say that Dr. Gu, that I mean the, the randomized control trials were clearly not large enough um, uh, to capture the rates of vaccine myocarditis that ended up hap- you ended up seeing in young men. So so fine if you want to do an RCT to prove safety, then make sure you have you know if the rate if if you're talking about a rate of one in five thousand say of vaccine myocarditis in young men. How many patients are you going to need to do an RCT? I mean, how many? Uh, how big of a trial are you going to need with 15 to 20-year-old young men to do that study, right? I mean, and given that the endpoint in that trial is going to have to be, you know, hospitalization or some severe outcome, how many patients do you need in that, in that trial, right? And so if you're starting to talk about, okay, oh, my God, to power this study appropriately, I'm going to need hundreds of thousands of people in that RCT, then it begs the question, why are you why why are you why are you trying to do the study because why are you trying to do the study because the efficacy is going to be so small does that make sense meaning meaning well, the, the, the yeah, benefit, look, yeah. The, the the only randomized controlled trial of these vaccines that has been done and that will ever be done was the phase 3 clinical trials once those were over the opportunity to do a randomized controlled trial is over it's never going to happen And we all know that. So let's be clear. Those studies were not adequately powered to pick up a safety signal uh, on the order of one in 5,000. So we have to go with the safety monitoring systems that are in place for the post-marketing surveillance, meaning what happens after you roll out the vaccine and give it to very large numbers of people. And the the idea that a randomized controlled trial is the only way to establish uh, a causal relationship between the vaccine and a potential adverse outcome is nonsense. Uh, It would have been nice to have more adequate randomized controlled trials over a longer period of time for these vaccines, but we don't have that and we're not going to get it. So it's clearly established uh, beyond reasonable doubt that cigarettes are associated with cancer. There's never been a randomized controlled trial establishing that cigarettes cause lung cancer but we all know it it's all you know it's it's acknowledged by everyone uh, because there are other ways uh, through uh, you know that there are other statistical methods other study methodologies that with cumulative evidence over time can definitively establish that there is a causal relationship i just i just want to jump in because we have hands up but but I, I agree with you. And I, let me just say for just a quick, th- those of you that aren't physicians that are listening to this conversation, this is the way doctors normally talk to each other. And we have not done this in four years, three years. It is so refreshing to hear my peers challenge, talk back and forth, raise these issues. It's, it, I feel like a weight is off my chest. So thank you all of you for, for engaging in this conversation, but I'm going to run over to Pierre, Corey, and then Steve, cause Steve has uh yeah, hi. really yeah, quick, really quick, Doctor Drew. Really quick, just because you just mentioned that about being three years without having these conversations, Doctor Gu said something about there wasn't censorship. I just wanted to, him to follow up with that statement, if that's something that he okay. believes. Doctor Gu, he said he yeah, wouldn't correct. call it censorship. He wouldn't call it censorship. He said, "Yeah, I said it wouldn't call right. it censorship, but there's definitely this culture of fear to you know toe the mainstream line. I, I felt that. I think everyone else has felt that too." Um, and there was a risk of ostracism if you didn't toe that line. Uh, in, in the but there were accounts removed from Twitter. 
doctor's accounts were were removed, suspended from Twitter. So I, I would I would say so. The, the point I wanted to make on this exact issue is, you know, the, the, I, I would say the thing that explains a lot of our differences of opinion. I'm going back to a point I already made, but I want to key in on the published literature because I think Dr. Gu. What I think the difference between Dr. Gu and myself, for instance, is how I look at the published literature at this point, three years into COVID, and the way I looked at it before. How I look at high-impact medical journals. Um, having studied this disease and having seen policies so divorced from actual data, and when I look at what's published in the journals, particularly high-impact journals. So, Dr. Gu, you made this point about um, you haven't seen, you know, credible evidence or evidence showing, you know, these you know, definitive high rates with large studies. I'm going to tell you my opinion. And this is just something I've come to in COVID is that if there were such a study, it would not be published in a high impact journal. And if it were to see publication in that journal, it would be attacked, discredited with fact checkers and or retracted. We have numerous examples of, uh, of studies really calling into question the, the safety of uh, the vaccines, which have been retracted after peer review. We've seen the same with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. I mean, th this is an attack on science. And I think the difference, Dr. this is what I'm just going to say, is that I think you have retained an implicit faith in our institutions of society, like our scientific institutions, agencies, and journals, which is which it no longer merits. Um, I, and that's just because I've been buried in so much stuff. And let me just give you one example. I don't want to talk about ivermectin. I want to use an example of censorship. So having been, I've become a world expert on ivermectin, and I've been communicating with investigators all around the world who've done studies. They have piles on their desks of rejection letters of very high quality, positive studies of ivermectin. Not one ever got published by any high impact journal. The only ones that were published were demonstrably fraudulent one done by pharma supported investigators. And so unless you recognize that's happening in science, what I see in the journals is a very curated view of favorable data. Remember, pharma which is the, the single greatest practitioner of disinformation campaigns out of all of industries. They're also the largest industry on earth. They've been doing disinformation for decades. They have the journals. You know, editors of New England Journal, Lancet, over the last 20 years, they've written books saying that pharma has control of those journals. So when, when we talk, when we have these data discussions, unless you recognize that wider context, it's going to be like I think you or, or Anish said, yeah, you can always find a study which proves your point versus those. But I will tell you, it, the, 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 that landscape is even more muddy because let, the let predominant me, ones that hit the newspapers come out of the high impact journals. And Pierre, there's a widespread narrative. I'm done there. Agree. Lots, lots of hands up. I want to get to it. Let, let me just my own experience was I, I was absolutely not aware of what you were talking about until the Danish mask study which I remember the, the discussions and the energy around the Danish mask study. They, they finally were going to answer the question prospectively in an excellent, well-designed study about masks. In the New England Journal, all of a sudden, the New England Journal refused to print it. Then JAMA refused to print it. And then it went into annals. And it was a negative study on the mandate for masks. That was the first time I became aware that something, well, what the, Dr. something Drew, was going how, on. How does that, that relate to, to pharma, though, if it's relating, it's a study relating to masks? I, I'm, I, I'm just saying that the, that the for some reason, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with Dr. Corey. I'm just saying 
it was the first time I became aware that the journals I rely upon may be adulterated. How they're adulterated? Are they are they afraid like everybody else is to say something that doesn't go with the common discourse? I, I don't know, but would it, you, it's, you know, would you would you, Doctor? Before we go to, to to other other panelists with their hands up, would you agree with the statement? Because a lot of people have, are asking that question, and for the audience, we'll be bringing audience questions shortly to all the panelists. Uh, but Drew, one question that the audience is asking is the the amount of power that big pharma has, and there is that conception. And there's a lot of obviously. I would, I would say one thing. I would just say one thing. Dis, disavow the notion that Snidely Whiplash is showing up twirling his mustache with a bag of cash. That is not happening. Okay. What is happening is that there is an extraordinary relationship between the individuals that serve on our regulatory agencies who then end up in authority positions at pharma. And there is flow of capital in sort of extraordinary directions out of pharma into regulatory. And as Pierre Corey said, into the journals and into the funding of research. This this has been a result of us not being willing to fund research. And so it had to go to the private sector. It's nobody's fault. It just happened. And there is now an extraordinarily cozy relationship that has to bias things. It just has to. There's not a bad person. Everyone's trying to do their best. When I, I have friends that work in pharma, they are extraordinary scientists. They they have they go, you know, raise their children and they want what's best for patients too. But they are biased by this these relationships. What comes to light is biased by these relationships and the flow of capital. Uh, Steve, back to VAERS. All right. I, I want to make uh, seven points and I'll, ma- I'll make them quickly, but I think they're Please. very relevant. Please. Okay. <laughs> so on mass, um, there also, um, uh, of course, BMJ uh, talked about uh, the fraud in the, uh, uh, the mass uh, study where the journals wouldn't publish it until they changed the paper. The um, same is true for the Bangladesh study. There have only been two randomized uh, studies on mass. The other one is the Bangladesh study. Science published it. They refused to consider calls to retract or correct it, which was based on obvious flaws. They wouldn't even respond to any criticism. So these journals are being driven by the narrative. They're not being driven by necessarily drug companies. Uh, The second point is that Peter McCullough and Jessica Rose wrote a paper. It was peer-reviewed. It was then subsequently retracted by the publisher. This was on myocarditis. Now, Peter McCullough is one of the top people in the world on myocarditis, the, the publisher refused to uh, say any reason whatsoever for retracting that paper. Uh, I have a qu- number three question for Dr. Before, Gu. Before, before we go to, so, so Steve, before we go to the question for Dr. Gu, uh, so, so in terms of the Bangladesh study and the, the Danish study about masks, why do you think they were suppressed? People oh, are they afraid. They, They're afraid. They, they, Mary, they, they, they were not suppressed. They the editors refused to publish them for fear of retribution. You, you cannot imagine the fear. Dr. Gu pointed out the culture of fear, whether you want to call it censorship or not. There people were physicians froze in place and were scared to do anything that didn't comply with the, I hate to use the word narrative, trying not to because biological sciences don't have narratives. There's no such thing as a narrative in science. There's, there is a probabilistic understanding. That's like, as I said the other day, it's like, the narrative of trying to explain how clouds behave. There's no narrative. There's just math. There's just data. 
There's just biology, and that's how it works. And actually, I admire poor Dr. Gu is taking this all on for himself. I, I'm sure he didn't come in here to, to do this. And in reality, he agrees with he agrees with. We all kind of agree, you know, sort of in principle what we're doing. We're we're just getting into the weeds here that we're disagreeing on. But Steve, finish up. Okay. Um, so the the uh, for if the Bangladesh study was, by the way, it was the opposite. They got it published immediately in Science. And then people looked at it, and, and I've had all statistics looked at it. We did you know, all sorts of analysis on it. It was very flawed. It showed no signal whatsoever, and science refused to consider that the paper might be wrong. So it works both ways. Um, so my number three was um, my question for Dr. Gu is, you just stated that for any study, you could find a counter study. Okay, so please, please. Tell us, where is the counter-prospective study showing that the Thailand paper, which was published in a peer-reviewed medical journal, is wrong? You said for every study, there is an opposite study showing the... Steve, I'm going to push back. We said it's not sufficiently powered. Both yeah. oh, no, 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 no. that's not what he said. He, okay. Dr. Drew, okay. he, said, right. he said specifically for every study... There is right. an opposite well, study. Well, he quoted a New England said. journal. I'm going to I'm going to try to stay with Dr. Koo because he's he's by on his own here, and I feel like I feel bad. But but he did he did report a New England journal study. Go ahead and report that, Dr. Koo. A prospective yeah. study. I'd like so to see that. There have been several large powered studies in the New England Journal, Lancet, and others. Um, I know there's um, I guess the the. The opinions in the crowd here is kind of like being very skeptical of those, and and that's fine. That that's for another debate. But the one study that I want everyone to kind of think about, um, for better or worse, we're all part of this randomized controlled study. Hundreds of millions of vaccines have already been given out, right across the world. And after all of that has happened, I haven't seen an epidemic of myocarditis. Uh, you guys can, you know, probably there's going to be a debate okay. on this, but, but I have seen Gu, people n- dropping dead with myocarditis. Name, name a cardiologist in the entire world where his rates of myocarditis went down after the vaccine. There hasn't been a sufficiently powered study that I have found. That no, 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 no. Name a cardiologist. Not a study. Name one cardiologist in the entire world who has seen their rates of myocarditis dropped significantly after the vaccines rolled out for that age group. Name any, any... See, the same problem continues, though, which is everybody's also had COVID. Is it COVID plus vaccine? I mean, this is all Name stuff that... One, sure, but we had period. COVID before. Name one cardiologist. Why can't we name one cardiologist in the world whose rates went down after the vaccine? Any panelists right. can jump in if they want to ask this one. Okay. I... Anish, Anish, you want to jump <laughs> so... in there? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I don't I, I, look, I, I understand what Dr. Gu's point is, is that but the issues are, again, look at the New England Journal papers. If you look at the Moderna, the Moderna studies, there is there is I mean, there isn't anyone less than the age of 18 in most of those most of those studies. Right. Um, and, and if you look at the 18 to 65 group, there's 7000 people. Right. So what Dr. Cariati said is absolutely right, uh, Dr. Gu. I mean, the general approach to a, a mass vaccination program, you can never do a large enough RCT. Uh, to make you feel comfortable about being safe. Uh, polio was 1.2 million kids um, with, with a hard endpoint. Um, and even then, there were problems. And, and, and because of what we learned from polio and smallpox, right, which do have adverse events, um, uh, we created a, 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 a system to catch events. So it's these post-marketing you know, surveillance systems, whether it be VARS or whether it be VSD, 
And again, but but, but Anish, let me let yeah. me reframe his question, his position. Yeah. And I'm Dr. Gu, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to stay and give you a little bit of support here. But yeah, no problem. He's, he's essentially he's essentially saying, look, there's been billions of vaccine given. We're seeing some myocarditis, but yeah. I'm convinced that the amount of myocarditis is probably balanced at least well against the potential adverse out. Hang on, Steve. Against adverse outcomes from COVID, I'm more concerned about right. COVID. I'm worried about long right, COVID. Right. We, so, we really I, not uh, right. bring bring any data in on that side. We've all been talking about the myocarditis yeah. oh, I, and and not the COVID right. side. But go ahead. I, I, I I'm, I'm, I, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the na- for the paper, the perspective study. It's not coming, Steve. It's not coming. Yeah, Sorry. No, I, I get oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, well, then, then we think, then he should acknowledge that his statement was untrue. Well, well Anish, go ahead. Anish. Well, I, I'm just same with the censorship. You're not going to have. I, I don't think you're going to. I, I don't think this answer. You're not going to have this. These answers uh, with 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 RCTs, unfortunately. I, but 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 again, I go back. It to wasn't the, an answer, RCT. An answer, hold on, hold on. Hang on, Steve. Hold on. In answer to Doctor, you know, in answer to the specific question Doctor Gu's asking here is that okay? You have to then, and and this this touches on what Doctor Drew brought up earlier too, right? We do have a sense of of how risky, um, uh, uh, you know, for a, a healthy seventeen-year-old encountering SARS-CoV-2 in the wild in 2021 and 2022 is correct. And yep. we know that we know based on multiple, multiple, multiple different data sets that the rate of myocarditis after second dose of an mRNA uh, vaccine is one in five thousand, one in seven thousand. Some people say it's 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 even more frequent than that. But even if no. we stick, even if we well, stick with that as an estimate, Just, hold on. Suppose yeah. we stick with that as an estimate. I understand. I, I I've written extensively about the Thai, the Thai study, so it's not that I don't understand that subclinical myocarditis. But anyway, if you if you stick with a one in five thousand estimate for uh, clinical myocarditis. You have to convince me, Dr. Gu, and, and others, that, that, uh, that you know, for a healthy 16, 17-year-old kid, the risk of severe events after encountering SARS-CoV-2 in the wild is going to be worse than 1 in 5,000, 1 in 7,000. I don't find that to be credible right now, for sure right now. I mean, and the question is, how far back do you go? Where you say, okay, the the risk is is going to be higher than that. And, and Anish, I think I think it. we are entering something kind of interesting here, which I've noticed, which is I I don't know the risk tolerance of a pediatrician. So our pediatric colleagues, first of all, they're largely populating public health positions, and I've seen them talking about the adult conditions, SARS-CoV-2, with extreme lack of understanding about what they're talking about. By the same token. I don't understand what their risk tolerance is for children and adolescents. They, they may have a much lower risk tolerance than we do as a, adult physicians. In other words, the, you know, the one in 100,000 severe COVID to them might be a really, really big deal that has to be attended to. You know what I'm saying? It, no, it's a I, different that's, discipline. That's absolutely true. And I think, I think we didn't do a good job of, and partly because we didn't have the data, and, part, and that partly we didn't have the data or the understanding in large parts because this was suppressed, that, look, there is a rate of vaccine myocarditis. Yeah, vaccine myocarditis is not something you want your child to get, all right? And and relative to, for a young, healthy kid, uh, relative to SARS-CoV-2, there may be some, you know, you may really want to think about this. Uh, okay. And, and that, yeah, that, yeah. Wasn't, we, that wasn't done well. But in, push, in pushing, pushing back... pushing everybody along because lots of hands up, so go ahead. Yeah. yeah. In, in pushing back, and just one last thing, in pushing, I, I, I'll, uh, this is unrelated, but in, in just a reference to the point that Dr. Corey and, and, and Steve has made, we, in terms of the excess mortality, that is, that is I think that, that's the much, much, much harder uh, um, uh, thing to kind of assess and ascertain because there's so many different confounding factors. And you have to then wrestle with the fact that you have highly vaccinated populations. And, and, and it's not that in highly, highly vaccinated populations, you have a really significant excess mortalities. And the, the issue with significant excess mortality is, is that 
it's so hard to tease out. Like, how do you tease out vaccine-related possible excess mortality from, say, lockdown excess COVID mortality? Right, and a niche, and a niche. And not, yeah. not only that, we're in a population with 85 to 95% of people have had yeah. COVID. So, What's right, so I'm really uncomfortable. What's with yeah, vaccine? Can I answer that? I would love Joanna to jump in because she's been waiting yeah, for yeah, Joanna, then Molly. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I was yeah. going to so go I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with attributing all excess mortality to vaccines. I'd be really interested in yes, hearing from the agreed. panel what the hardest agreed. data point is to suggest that, yes, the excess mortality is definitely from the vaccines and not from you know a host of other things that it could be. Great. Can I think Sabine has been waiting the longest with her hand Okay, you guys. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let Joanna and then Molly and then Sabine, because I know Joanna has been trying to jump in and out. She doesn't have much time. Uh, so Joanna and then Sabine and Molly, go ahead, Joanna. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you for having me. Just for everybody on the panel, um, my name's Joanna. I'm an anesthesiologist, a surgical intensivist, critical care physician for the audience, ICU physician, um, who did my fellowship at a, a Harvard-affiliated hospital um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I am not an immunologist. I am not an epidemiologist. I wish that we had um, those folks on this call um, to help offer a little bit more insight. Um, but uh, my viewpoint is just my position. Um, it doesn't represent that of my hospital. Um, and I I think that my specific patient population in Boston and New York City um, is another uh, just limitation as far as as far as my own insight you know i'm bringing obviously the data that you guys are talking about but alongside my own experience which i think is relevant um i i just want to take a step back and and kind of reframe this a little bit in the form of patient consent because i've heard that come up a few different times and how we are actually engaging our patients, um, how we are actually communicating risk to our patients, I think, is, is important. And perhaps, perhaps um, especially in, in pediatric populations where we, we are talking about risk tolerance, um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a relevant um, uh, point of discussion that I just I don't want to I don't want to miss. Uh, I think Dr. that Dr. Cariotti was talking about that uh, before you jumped in, but I, I completely agree with you, uh, Sabine. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm going to uh, comment on a couple of things today, um, which actually, Drew, you probably don't remember, but you and I met during the Michael Jackson, Conrad Murray trial. I do. I do remember it. Yes. I do remember it. Yes, and we were talking Beverly about Hills. egregious practice of giving propofol at home, right? So today I'm going to talk about egregious deviation from standard of care of conducting clinical trials because I'm very, I've been doing clinical trials for almost three decades. And there's a lot of deviations from doing clinical trials that have happened that made me step into the spire of COVID. One was informed consent. We've talked about it, but the process of informed consent itself was not followed. How many patients actually got a copy of their consent when they got vaccinated or when they even got remdesivir? That was one. Number two, we've gone from my studies to direct clinical practice that has never been seen in clinical trials in all the years that I've done clinical trials. I've never seen a study go from mice directly to market ever. The other thing is trials not looking at serious side effects, serious adverse events. When a patient dies 20 days from, 
from her after being given a vaccine or an investigative product, that is a serious adverse event that needs to be investigated. And that usually triggers a black box warning. That was never done. And, and I was really upset about this from the beginning when I saw kids, a kid dying or a kid ending up in a hospital from a vaccine that, as you guys pointed out, would not have a, 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 the virus would have not gotten him to the hospital, but the vaccine got him to the hospital. And that was never investigated. And there was no black box warning. So I think that's those are the main points I wanted to bring up was the deviation from standard of care of conducting clinical trials. And that should have been, you know, the the red light for everybody as physicians. The second thing, and I agree with... I don't know, before, before, I go to, stuff, sorry, before I go to the second point, maybe let, let Joanna retracted. or Dr. Gu... Papers retracted, papers retracted or papers not published are rebuttal for the TOGETHER trial with Pierre Corey and Peter McCullough and Dr. Barodi was never published in the New England Journal. Don't we have a voice to say and, and counteract the, the research that was done? That's it. That's and, all I have to say. Yeah, and, and I, yeah thank, thank you. And, and I, I hear what you're saying. And I just, I think you're, in so many ways, you're bringing up exactly what we need to discuss for future concerns. But I do want to approach this constructively and with empathy for those who did make some really hard choices. Put yourself in the position of our leaders. You know, how how were they supposed to protect the American people at the and height Joanna, of... Joanna, let me, let me, I agree with you. We rushed to it. And I, I didn't disagree with rushing to it. We needed to do something. But why can't we pause now or even discuss... Yes. That yes. there might be yeah. an excessively rigorous push to vaccinate people for whom the risk benefit is not clear. I, and, that's an odd thing to me. Why the? Why the go ahead. That's yes, and and those those considerations. We have to we have to be emotionally austere about this. Handle this in a cool way, and and you know engage in civil exchange, which we're doing, and it's beautiful. But but this is this is a matter of evaluating um, and assessing salutatory next steps. Um, and what do we but do? We're, 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 but we're not even allowed to raise the issue. It's, it's, I, I like, yeah. I, before you jumped down, I was saying what, what a glorious uh, sort of feeling it is to hear my peers conversing with each other again. And, yeah. and you know, tr we all agree on most things, but this, these very issues, we're all asking the same questions. You know, what's the impact of COVID on this data? We're saying, why can't we slow down and start to fill in where we rush things to market? Let's fill in that data a little bit. And seemingly even to say that, is to risk being deplatformed. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe Eugene, did you want to, you want to uh, respond to that point? Yeah, sure. Um, especially, I think the main point that I've been hearing is that um, the risk versus benefit for younger males, maybe in like the teenage years, is is it safe for them to have the vaccine? And I think that's where it really comes down to informed consent. There's a lot of, you know, young males who are who really wanted to get vaccinated. And their informed consent was, I believe, you know, based on everything that they have heard from their parents or themselves doing research or from their physicians, that the benefits would outweigh the risk for them. And they went ahead and got vaccinated. And I think, you know, it's not up to us to dictate informed consent for our patients. But, but Dr. Gu, the majority, of the, I agree with you, but the majority of those kids are being forced by their collegiate institutions, their high schools, their football teams. They have to get the vaccine in order to participate and show up at school. That's the stuff we're taking issue with. That's the question here that really is at, at issue. 
these their informed consent and their ability to make that informed consent is being muscled by institutions who come up with mandates that aren't science based. Right. And And I think that's where we can kind of maybe agree on something where vaccine mandates that gets to a slippery slope. Right. Because if you force people to get vaccinated and you take away their agency and their informed consent, um, I don't think I would support that. either. So there is another thing we all agree on. All physicians here, I bet you agree on that one point. And it's a major, major issue. And you're not allowed to talk about it. Molly, let's get her up here. She's been waiting for a while, too. Uh, uh, Dr. Drew, Aaron. Hi, can you hear me? Steve, yeah, hold on. Back. Hold on, Steve. Yeah, we got to be back. You <laughs> can you hear me? Yes, we got you. We got you. Uh, Okay. Okay. Um, Just for people who don't know me, I'm Molly Rutherford. I am a I'm a family physician. I'm also an addiction specialist in Kentucky, and um, I have a direct care practice. So I have a pretty small practice, and I just wanted to add my perspective um, as a person, as a doctor on the front lines. Um, You know, we're, we're focusing a lot on data, and I understand we have to do that as scientists and as doctors. But I'm just I, I just wonder how many pa- how many physicians on the front lines. I'm seeing I'm seeing people vaccine injured. I started seeing very early on uh, people who I probably would not have recommended the vaccine for. Um, I never provided any shots in my clinic, um, but went ahead and got the got the vaccines because they were teachers or they were on the front lines, and so they they felt like they needed to get it. People with shingles, Bell's palsy. You know, I I. I haven't seen, I had one case of myocarditis in an 11 year old, but it's unclear that it was the vaccine. So I just want to focus on, you know, some of these adverse effects that we're seeing from this vaccine. Um, you know, while they might not be life threatening, they are, they're, they are debilitating compared to what I've seen with other vaccines for adults in the past. And, Many of these people, in my opinion, didn't never needed it. Many of them already had had COVID. Um, many of them were young. They were healthy. And, and that's basically why I decided not to get it. I had just had COVID and barely had any, any symptoms. So why was I going to get a shot that I was witnessing, you know, taking people out for days? They couldn't go to work. Um, I'm just wondering if there are other frontline doctors who are speaking seeing the same things. Um, you know, I just yes. wanted to give that perspective. Yes. I, that, that's why, you know, that's what causes, right? We trust our clinical impressions. Our clinical impressions really, oh, Mario, our clinical impressions really are what we learn to trust. The literature is always behind our clinical impressions. And that's when I turned to the literature because I was seeing a lot of this stuff myself. Really, really the, some extraordinary stuff. And you say debilitating, life-altering life-altering kinds of reactions. And in people where, like you said, I was unconvinced they had real risk from the illness itself. Steve, now your turn. Uh, Can I chime in here, Drew? Yeah, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Steve, Steve, real quick, and then Aaron. Steve, then Aaron. Make it quick, Steve. So um, the people with uh, severe myocarditis uh, have a symptom which is very troubling, which is they die suddenly, okay? So don't assume that, that it's just myocarditis that these teens have and they're okay, okay? Because a lot of them are going to die suddenly. And if you're going to compare risk, you need to compare the risk of dying suddenly 
with the risk of dying from COVID. And you have to go and estimate the efficacy of the vaccine even working and preventing that death. And nobody is doing that. The and 3% Steve, Steve they're, they're not even asking a more simple question, which has to be asked as well, how much of those sudden deaths are related to COVID itself. Now, Dr. Gu will point at a couple of studies that tried to answer that. I thought they were terrible and certainly underpowered. But that's the other question. It, it could be COVID. It doesn't have to be the vaccine. It could no, be COVID no, plus vaccine. No, 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 because these, these, these studies, uh, like the Schwab study, show that, that they show the same sort of pattern in the arm as in the heart. And these well, people die shortly after I vaccine. Know. I get There's it. A, I get it. Okay, so let me, let me just finish here. I want to just go through my points here. There's a 3% rate of myocarditis in the military. Okay, so this is very comparable to what's in the Thailand study. So if there's a prospective study and there's a better study, please name specifically the study. Don't tell me there are lots of studies. Name the study. I would love to see it and love, love to be proven wrong. There's a death safety signal in VAERS that was triggered a long time ago. We talked to the CDC about that. They completely ignored it. They would not show that the calculation is wrong. I talked to all of these people who debunk people like me and they would not touch it. They would not show that the calculation was wrong. Basically, we are the, the CDC is ignoring the death safety signal in VAERS. They're not even looking at it. Um, and it's not even a, a close risk benefit analysis here. The deaths are two per 1,000 um, for people who take the vaccine. And I will be happy to, to spend hours debating the science on this. There are so many data points showing this, and it's even worse if you're old, people okay. who do, do geriatric clinics are seeing multiples of that in uh, in older people. And the number of people that they're seeing dying from COVID versus the number of people that they're seeing dying from the vaccine, it's not even close. I mean, we're talking ratios of 10 to 1 or more okay. in some that cases. Will be, that will be debate for another day. Aaron. Okay. And the, the final, yep. let, me, let me make a final point that, that you're saying that well, how do we know that these events are due to COVID versus the COVID vaccine? The answer is through correlation. There are lots of studies that look at this 10 different ways, and they all show that the difference between the people who are dying and not dying is the vaccine and is not COVID, okay? Because okay. yes. both groups are getting COVID at about the same rate. Positive. Aaron. All okay. right. Yeah. I, Thank you. I, I want to Google Earth up a little bit and provide some big picture context and synthesis. Number one, I'm glad everyone seems to agree that informed consent is a good thing. I'm wondering where my physician colleagues were a year ago when I got fired for trying to uphold that principle during the vaccine mandate uh, fever. Um, but there were a couple of basic epidemiological, the two most important epidemiological facts about COVID were known in March of 2020, very early on. One was the infection fatality rate, which was 0.2%. Uh, my colleague Jay Bhattacharya and John Ioannidis at Stanford established that in the Santa Clara study. And that number has been replicated all over the world countless times. Nobody doubts that that's the actual infection fatality rate, much, much lower than what the WHO initially reported of three to 4% of people who get infected with COVID are going to die, which of course was a terrifying number. So we knew that in March of 2020, we also knew the age gradient, which is the second most important epidemiological fact about COVID, that the vast majority of those deaths were over the age of 70, and that uh, a very small number of those deaths was uh, 
in people under the age of 50. We also know that healthy children do not die of COVID, period. <laughs> there's, there's no exceptions. There's no case reports uh, even taking exception to that. A any children who have died of COVID have severe comorbidities uh, on the order of what would put them at risk of dying from influenza or even the common cold. Uh, and children do die of influenza every year, and, and even the common cold when they have severe uh, cardiorespiratory problems. Those two facts were not highlighted in 2020 when we had a one-size-fits-all uh, policy regarding masks, regarding lockdowns, regarding school closures. We treated everyone as though they were at equal risk of COVID. And those two facts, which were just only reaffirmed uh, in the course of 2020 were also not highlighted in 2021 when we were talking about vaccines. There was never any discussion about the fact that the risk-benefit ratio of a vaccine may differ according to age. Um, it, was, it was a needle in every arm. And there, there absolutely was censorship of anyone who, who tried to challenge that. The Twitter files demonstrated that. We had Martin Koldorf, and Jay Bhattacharya, um, who, along with me, are co-plaintiffs in the Missouri v. Biden case, uh, alleging government collusion with social media companies to suppress free speech on COVID and on other issues. And, and we now have definitive evidence that both of them were censored by Twitter for their views on COVID policy. And we're talking, you know, Martin Koldorf, an MD, PhD in epidemiology, Harvard uh, professor and Jay Bhattacharya, an MD, world-renowned epidemiologist at Stanford. So these are not, you know, these are not fringe figures Damn. in these debates that that were that were silenced. I want to make one more point about the whole question of vaccine adverse effects, and that's that. Given that the only randomized controlled trials we we're going to get uh, were in the phase three clinical trials, I thought it important that Americans have access to that data, especially since many of us were being mandated to take the vaccine. The federal government was required the day it authorized Comirnaty, Pfizer's vaccine, to release that data. It didn't. So I coordinated a group of scientists and physicians to file a FOIA request to get the data from the FDA. The Department of Justice lawyers representing the FDA said, we'll give you 500 pages a month, which if you do the math would have taken 75 years to get data that the FDA reviewed in only 108 days. Uh, Pfizer then intervened and said, allow us to redact the data before it's released, which was not surprising given their own interests there. But what was surprising is that the same Department of Justice lawyers representing the FDA agreed with Pfizer and petitioned the court to allow the company to redact the data. Fortunately, we had a good judge who said, no, you'll have to release it in the next eight months and Pfizer will not be involved in the redactions. One key document that's come out of the release of those documents is basically the, a document summarizing the adverse effects reported in the first 90 days after uh, the uh, vaccine campaign began in early 2021. And one of the, the striking thing about this, quote unquote, post-marketing surveillance document uh, was that myocarditis was just one of many adverse events reported. And granted, these reports don't confirm causality. Each of these reports requires additional investigation 
to to verify causality. So all the usual caveats. But there were there's an appendix in this document with nine solid pages of text, wall to wall text, listing listing different types of adverse effects reported from that the vaccine. I have never as a physician <laughs> looking at the research literature, I've never seen anything like this in my 20 years as a physician. I mean, it was really, it was really staggering. And what was striking is that more or less every organ system in the body was potentially implicated. So I know that we're getting down into the weeds on the question of myocarditis, and that's good. We should be having those robust debates. Um, But I also want to point out that that's the only safety signal that the CDC or FDA has investigated so far. But there are many other safety signals that have gone up. Uh, well, that, that, there, from, that goes at the that goes at the excess mortality data that yeah, has not been yeah, approached yeah, at all. Mortality yeah. is a good way to cut through a lot of statistical. Well, noise. We're going to so get, get Dr. Corey in here. One other thing we don't yeah. think about it, revealed this morning: Dr. Fauci's wife is the head of his ethics organization. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you guys saw that this yeah, morning. Uh, yeah, she's the head of so, so the NIH. Dr. Corey. Uh, Dr. Yeah, so, before Dr. Corey jumps in, I, I just want you, if you don't mind, Drew, do you mind if I just get Eugene or Joanna to respond to Aaron's points to kind of balance it out before going to Dr. Corey? Okay. Uh, sure. I mean, I'm happy to answer real quick and then uh, Please, give the floor to Joanna. Thanks, um, So I, I heard a lot of statistics, you know, floating around and, and uh, talked about uh, in this, you know, really amazing conversation. Um The one statistic that I like to look at is the one from New England Journal where it says there is a case report it was 2.13 cases per 100,000 patients who get myocarditis and and the highest incident was in younger males um and but the n in that study was 2.5 million patients in a large healthcare organization it's an israeli study in the new england journal so as a physician when i look at that and i compare it to studies that have like 300 patients or 200 patients or 30 patients um i have to you know kind of rely upon the largest study um, published in the biggest journal and which all of my peers are also referring to uh, in order to give the good standard of care to my patients. And I'll, I'll pause here and, and let other people, you know, kind of debate that. But, you know, what do you guys think about how we as physicians have to take a look at all the studies and then prioritize which ones you know, have the most weight? Uh, let, let me speak. Yeah, to and, I'll, and I'll, oh, okay. go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, yeah. I, I, I just, I, I will, um, I, I just, I support exactly what you, Eugene is saying. I think that, um, when we're thinking about the power of a study and the impact, um, you know, within these, within these journals, um, you know, the, the actual, um, the actual end, how many patients are we looking at is, is essential to consider. Um, and, uh, Again, I, I think that just kind of going back to basics here, um, it's not to say, I, I think that in the development of these vaccines, we were really working with limited data. We were doing the best that we could um, with, with um, uh, uh, not, not a complete absence, but with a lack of, of, of data. And I think that as more information is coming out, I think that as we look, especially, I think, again, to some of the Israeli studies, especially, um, it, it becomes more uh, helpful in guiding future conversation and how we approach the vaccine for perhaps populations that are at lower risk. Yeah. So the, the point I want to make is I think, Eugene, you just crystallized kind of the point I was making earlier is that 
you know, if there's sort of a, a polar opposites of how we look at this, it's I'm just going to key on that statement you just made, which is that you have to trust the biggest study in the biggest journal. And I would posit the opposite uh, on what I've learned in studying the decades of corruption in the pharmaceutical industry and their control over healthcare and its institutions. It is just that study you should be highly skeptical of if it's big and it's in what I call a big journal. It's there for a reason. It's not necessarily there because that's the best science. In fact, I will tell you that the reason why it's there is because it's favorable to pharma. If you had that same big study showing a massive increase in myocarditis, it would not be there. So that's one point I want to make. I want to actually move away from the medical literature and go back to the point that I think Anish and you brought up earlier, which is really a good one. Because what I like about the actuarial and life insurance data is because that data, that is, that is data that they need to price their policies. It drives an entire industry and it behooves them to make it as accurate as possible. So it would be completely against their interest to manipulate or suppress alarming rises in life insurance claims amongst young people. So, and that's why I like that data because we get away from the science, this, this study, that study, big power, P value, this and the other thing. What we're left with is the problem that you guys articulated, right? So you see this sudden rise of these massive deaths in young people in this country, and you're left with, well, could it be something else driving it? What is the confounder? And my answer to that is two words. You need to explain away the temporal, the tight, I'm going to use three words, tight temporal association. When you see these peaks in these vaccinations, you see this huge rise in deaths, and it all start at the same time. And then the most compelling and most almost inarguable data was presented at Ron Johnson's panel by Josh Sterling and Ed Dowd. One is a, you know, a longtime finance um, uh, expert and the other one is a deep in the life insurance industry where they did a deeper dive on these massive life insurance claims. And what they found was that the biggest risk factor for death was actually owning a group life health insurance policy. And what you need to know about that is group life health insurance policies are almost all Fortune 500 company employees, and they are traditionally the healthiest sector of society. I think their mortality rate is one-third to two-thirds that of the general population. In 2021, in that cohort of life insured, they had a massive rise suddenly. And I agree, there could be confounders. So let's talk about them. Lockdowns in 2021 for Fortune 500 folks? No. Sudden uh, increase in drug addiction, deaths of despair? No, you can't see that data. In fact, there's lots of data showing that the biggest rise was in causes unknown. And then we have lots of data for sudden cardiac arrest. And so for me, I think as a society, we need to talk about, we have life insurance data showing unprecedented historic rises in deaths across the youngest and healthiest of society at a time when variants were getting milder and large part cardiovascular. And yet we don't have a concerted public debate. You don't see this in the papers. You don't see the government calling this out. You don't see epidemiologists having these discussions. Where is the wider discussion around this truly alarming data? Yeah, I'm just going to add two points to that on alternative hypotheses, which so far I have not seen a convincing alternative hypothesis put forward. The exact numbers on deaths of despair we have 
for 2021. So alcohol-related deaths went from 69,000 to 99,000, which is a huge increase of 30,000, but a tiny drop in the bucket in terms of that overall rise in all-cause mortality. Same thing happened to drug overdose deaths, 70,000 to 100,000. So lockdowns were disastrous. They We saw 60,000 uh, increase uh, in uh, alcohol and drug-related deaths. But still, you put those two together, small drop in the bucket in that all-cause mortality shift. So those don't account for it. Uh, that's Those are bad. As a psychiatrist, I wrote about this in 2020, what I called the other pandemic. Uh, but that's not sufficient to explain. The other common explanation or hypothesis that's been put forward is missed appointments. But what happens with missed appointments, let's say to primary care, is, you know, if you miss your colonoscopy, you don't die the following year of colon cancer. If you if you miss your appointments with your primary care physician and you have diabetes, you don't die the following year of diabetic related complications. You get a modest bump in, you know, your your morbidity and mortality, your diabetes related complications or your cancer risk sometime over the next 10 to 15 years. But you don't see this you know, immediate spike in mortality the following year, simply because people in 2020 uh, had a harder time accessing medical care uh, during the during the lockdowns. So this data is screaming for an explanation. Um, and I'm very concerned, again, big picture context, that very few people seem to care. And the ones who do comment on it sort of wave it away you know, with a wave of their hand and a kind of cheap hypothesis like one of these that has been suggested without the slightest indication that they're interested in actually investigating this. Um, so th this is a this is a big picture contextual problem that I think should alarm us. That these it's, numbers it's, a, it's, are one, it's, the, it's a, a mystery that I raised an hour ago, which is yeah. why is there not an international hue and cry to rush to an explanation because it is not just in this country and uk is moving this way uk is starting to go there so i have a feeling we're going to hear some information from the united kingdom that we're not getting to the united states but why it is it an emergency uh, you said earlier that you thought it was because of their unwillingness to step down from their previous positions i'm sure that biases people but certainly as clinicians and physicians, they, they got to in their private moments be thinking, what is going on here and why are we not rushing to answer it? It's it's an uncanny thing. I, I, I agree with you. It's 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 an uncanny thing. Um, I, I, can I just amplify something that, that Pierre said about the uh, conflicting studies? Uh, uh, Dr. Gu said, well, I'll take the largest study. And I totally agree with Pierre on this. Uh, that it is, it, you, you take the most credible study. <clears throat> so you have to look at what might be causing this because there's only one truth here, folks. There's only one truth. Either this thing is dangerous or it's not. And <clears throat> just because when you have these large studies, typically what they do is they say, well, there were, uh, you know, let's look at the number of reports in the hospital system. Well, not all things are reported. So when you have a prospective study, which is following these people longitudinally. And you know that there's no myocarditis before. And you see the myocarditis and the heart damage after. That is going to be far better than a huge study which doesn't follow a, a set number of patients longitudinally. So to me, I always look for the highest quality study. And then I also look for... Why would this study, this larger study, not have the same results as 
what I think the higher quality study is and how do I resolve the conflict? Because you just can't ignore the other one just because the trial was bigger. And we're going to have Anish come up. But hang on, Anish, before you go, I want to uh, just define a term that we've been tossing around. We've been saying clinical myocarditis versus subclinical myocarditis. So the subclinical is the patient has no symptoms, no effects of the myocarditis, but we find measurable evidence, either blood test or MRI or echocardiogram of cardiac injury. And the presumption is the subclinical does not necessarily uh, progress to clinical or something more severe. Anish. Uh, before, before Anish, Eugene, did you want to respond to Steve first? Yeah, I just wanted to um, kind of talk about what, what Steve was uh, you know, mentioning about choosing which study to believe. And, you know, that's, there's a legitimate debate around that. For me, I just follow the, the, the statistics and, and the math behind it. You know, the, the smaller studies have a higher chance of variance. It, there's a higher chance of false positives, false negatives, what have you. Um, the larger studies are there because the more people that you study and examine in an unbiased way, of course, um, you're going to reduce the variance in the chances that, um, you, you know, that, that you'll catch something that doesn't really exist, right? Because I think all of us here can agree on one thing. We want reality and the truth and the actual, you know, science behind it to prevail, not like subjective opinions, not politics, not anything that is non-objective. Um, and so that's why I, you know, gravitate towards the larger powered studies with millions of patients involved, because that smooths out the possible variances and the possible false findings that you can have. Got it. And uh, Anish. Here we go. Well, I mean, I just to respond to that point. I, I mean, Dr. Yu, I think you're speaking in generalities that um, I don't quite um, understand because the RCTs were, you know, some whatever twenty thousand folk, twenty thousand patients. But 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 again, you, you, that that is not the system that that has been established and set up for vaccine safety because vaccine safety means you are giving a vaccine to millions and millions and millions of people. There are twenty five million people in these age bands that we're talking about, and you're using. 20,000 patient RCTs to do that. So that is not a viable way. We would never get a study to, or we would never get a lot of drugs to market, or certainly not vaccines to market, uh, because the trials that would be required would be absolutely gargantuan. So the way that vaccine safety is supposed to happen is that you do a large enough trial that you decide, someone decides, it's a little bit arbitrary, but you someone decides how big the trial needs to be to do it based on what's going on, how emergent the condition is, et cetera. And then after that, you because you're giving it to millions and millions and millions of people based on a study that's 20,000 people or, or so, um, you then have to look for post-marketing signals. And what happened was a signal of myocarditis came about, and it came about in young men. So I, I don't. I mean, you're speaking generally about about power and stuff and variance, and and I, I mean, I don't. That's not how the. I don't think that's how the vaccine safety and stuff uh, really uh, uh, works. But I, I'll just push, just push back on, on to, to, to Steve a little bit. Look, my last substack is on, is on vaccine-associated myocarditis and the link to sudden cardiac death, all right? Uh, I am concerned about it because, as Steve brings out, the trials that we have are looking at hospitalized patients with uh, myocarditis patients that end up being hospitalized. It is possible to miss a signal of, of cardiac death before you get to the hospital, right? which is why that Florida study, which was panned widely, is an important study. We should be looking to see if there's a sudden cardiac death uh, signal, um, uh, which we're missing, right? Um, but, but Steve, I mean, we do also have lots and lots and lots of data sets, and Dr. Corey, too. We do have lots of data sets. For instance, uh, you know, Sweden, right, uh, is a lab. And in Sweden, um, we don't have 
excess deaths in younger adults. Now, um, so again, I know, I, you know Dr. Corey brought up the life insurance data. I, 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 it's very hard to be very familiar with these data, data sets, and I, I'm not that familiar with that data set. Maybe it's some super strong thing that I have to learn from. But Sweden, for instance, is, is, is a little bit of an issue, right, guys? I mean, why is it that we're not seeing an excess death mortality signal in, in, in a population that, you know, has a reasonable vaccination rate in, in a, you know, in a 20 to 40 age group. I mean, where there's the, the excess mortality there isn't being seen. And, and, and well, I've seen... you're, you're, but you know what, it goes at another question. Yeah. Why do some people get myocarditis and others don't? Maybe there's oh, a that's genetic a... thing here. Maybe there's, you know, oh, who knows what it hasn't been that's, studied. That's, that's a, you're yeah, asking no, no, questions that's, that's that are just great, routine. Yeah. Well, and well, people Dr. aren't Drew, asking. That's a, yeah, Dr. Drew, that's a great question. Actually, there's a case report that just came out now that RF squared, uh, Ramin, uh, another cardiologist put out today. And I, I have a little thread on pathogenesis of uh, vaccine myocarditis and what these two cases show. These were two cases after the Novavax, which is a non-mRNA-based vaccine. And, and these, were, these were two cases of uh, Novavax-caused myocarditis after they had mRNA vaccine-caused myocarditis. So, that, so these two young adults got the Novavax vaccine, believing, because it's protein-based and not mRNA-based, yep. that, hey, I'd be safe with this. But these are two cases just reported today, or, uh, or at least... I saw it today. Which, which, which suggests the problem is the spike protein, right? That suggests right. that. It may be and, and my question is, if, yeah, if that's true, yeah. why are we not rushing to get Covaxin in the United States? That's another yeah. mystery to me. Covaxin's a whole virus vaccine that's excellent. It's got a great track record in India. Why aren't we bringing right. that to the United States? Right, right. Uh, but, but Drew, but I want to that point about, about I mean, Dr. Corey and, and, Dr., and Steve. Um, why Please raise hands. Are you worried raise about... Are you worried about um, uh, about the fact that we're not, not worried. Are you, are you, uh, the fact that Sweden doesn't have an excess mortality signal in young people who are, you know, fairly vaxxed, why, you know, why is that? We have to be able to explain those things. So I, I agree that there's a, there's a, there's certainly a link between vaccines and, and, and myocarditis and, of course, vaccines and severe cases. But, and that Schwab study is great. That's what I go over in that, my last substack on the, on, you know, the deltoid, uh, you know, I, I, I'm well aware of the study. But, but, but you have to do a lot more than establish that, yes, a vaccine can cause myocarditis. Yes, a vaccine can cause death. You've got you to make a, you know, show a lot more, I think, to show that there's an excess mortality, an excess death signal seen in the entire population. And just as one example, Sweden um, doesn't show that. So why is that? But, but the question, but the, really the question behind the question is, why aren't we pushing ahead with great urgency to answer those questions? Why to raise these right. questions, you have to risk your career. Sabine, let's let her in here. Her hand has been up patiently. Sabine. Yeah, no, one of the things and one comment that I'd like to bring up to support Steve and, and Pierre, and something we all forgot was that, you know, when we talk about high impact journals and high population, that Lancet study that had 96,000 patients recruited in one month, written by a sci-fi writer, right? Scientific fiction writer wrote that paper. It went all over the media. It killed hydroxychloroquine for those of us who were doing the clinical trials. And it, it was basically removed because they found out it was fraudulent. That's when I lost, I, I started seeing the truth about the medical literature and about these high impact, exactly what Pierre has talked about. There is something that is stopping research from being published, and there is something that is publishing high impact in high-impact journals, high studies, and frankly, I don't trust them anymore. So I see a study on vaccine safety with thousands of people. I don't trust it. I go paid to sell a product. That's it. So that's okay. my... 
And by the way, they never went back in the media, in the mainstream media to say, oh, by the way, that paper was retracted from the Lancet. Remember that? Yep. Drew, can I offer uh, some some thoughts? Again, Google Earth up big picture to your question. Why aren't our public health authorities more concerned about designing the studies that would definitively or more definitively answer these questions? I want to offer a few thoughts about our federal agencies, just beginning with the NIH. So most Americans are still not aware that the NIH co-owns the patent on the Moderna vaccine. Six people within the NAIAD division of the NIH, that's Fauci's division, get royalties on the Moderna vaccine for the rest of their life. That, in, that division itself gets royalties on the Moderna vaccine. Uh, their descendants will get royalties on the Moderna vaccine. There is money flowing from Moderna to the NIH for that vaccine. So one hypothesis as to why they're not looking into Novavax or other things is that they have a financial conflict of interest. Second point about the NIH is uh, Dr. Fauci or anyone in his position should never have been put in a position of advising on public health policy the way in, the way that he was. Why? The NIH's job is to fund research, biomedical research in the United States, and more than 80% of biomedical research, the vast majority in the United States, is funded by the NIH. There are universities that receive half a billion dollars a year in federal funding, research universities, and most of that or much of that comes from the NIH. Why do I say that Fauci should not have been in a position of advising the president or the public on public health? Well, he and a small number of people at the NIH control the purse strings on scientific research. So if you're a researcher at an academic medical center or a university, you rely on NIH funding. And if Dr. Fauci is getting on TV and telling people this is the policy that that I support and that we we support, you or your university is uh, is going to be very concerned if you speak out publicly against those policies, if you publish anything that might undermine those policies, because the retaliation can be swift, uh, severe, and very simple, which is just you don't get your grant funding uh, the following year. And there's, you know, there's been plenty of documented evidence that uh, the current leadership at the NIH is more than happy to operate this way and to silence um, critics or opponents simply by uh, by withholding uh, NIH grant funding. So the, the primary investigators, the, the kind of lead researchers at all the major universities um, are in a, in a position now where it's very hard for them to speak out because it could harm their career. These are the same people that typically serve as editors of the peer review process. So you, you don't have to put on a tinfoil hat to, to start understanding why the peer review process could be compromised, why the scientific funding uh, and research process could be biased or compromised in various ways. All you have to do is begin following the money. I, I, could, I could run through the same financial conflicts of interest at the FDA, which approves drugs and vaccines, or at the CDC, which gives 
public health recommendations. I'll maybe save that for later if folks are interested in that. Yeah, but just it'd be, it'd be a good discussion. Sorry, Drew, I would love someone to push back on that point. Maybe Drew, Eugene, or, or Joanna. Well, Drew, Ma- Mario, let me just tell you, I, I feel us sort of drifting to a halt here. Like, like you're noticing that we as this has been so refreshing to talk to my peers the way we normally talk to each other. Uh, and you'll see, you see that we, we disagree on not a lot. We, we're trying to do our best for our patients. We're trying to figure out conform, conform consent. We're trying to understand the literature as best as we possibly can. There's new challenges to looking at that literature and whether or not it's been adulterated. There's new challenges to looking at academic medicine and whether they've been adulterated. So it adds a layer to what we are all doing. And of course, there's disagreement then in terms of interpreting the data and coming to a conclusion as to what we tell our patients. But we, there's a lot of agreement here, which is what I was expecting. That, that we need, amongst everything else, there needs to be a restoration of collegiality amongst physicians, so we can start to function again and start to build the medical system back on behalf of our patients. I, I have to jump off, but it seems to me uh, you you can let somebody Mario um, respond. But yeah, I, I think I think now is the time to sort of bring the questions in from the audience that we promised two hours ago, and I kind of have to exactly. Jump off here. Exactly. Yeah, I appreciate helping me co-host, Doctor. Okay. Uh, I, I do have questions. Uh, you can feel free to jump back on any time if you got time. But uh, got uh, for, for the other panelists, and, and we have panelists that are trying to come up and it's glitching for them, so we're, we're trying to fix it for you guys. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I've got questions from the audience that we could address, and feel free to put your hand up or just jump in. Um, but I'll go with um, the first question is, what would you change about the, 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 the public health response to COVID now that it's been a couple of years Maybe Eugene, do you want to kick that one off? Yeah, sure. I can kick that off. Um, I think the biggest blunder that we've made as a country and from a public health perspective is really politicizing the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, This really shouldn't be a political thing at all. Um, It it should just be based on objective science, um, not taking sides, not having an extreme left or an extreme right kind of battle over COVID. uh, And it became like a culture war. That is what I regret about how we responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. We're supposed to all have been in this together, um, not fight with each other like this, not um, not create this like culture of fear or censorship or, or whatever you would like to call it, um, but just join together and help as many patients as possible. And why, before we got another panelist, why do you think it got politicized, Eugene? That's a good question. I think just the envir- the political environment that we have been in uh, you know, you could argue, you know, since Trump you know, came into office, whether you like him or don't like him, um, he made the environment really political or maybe the, the environment was already very like polarized even before he came. But I think but, it's just the environment that we're in that lends itself to the politicization uh, of COVID. The problem is public health wanted to be political, right? I mean, public health sat there and said that you can't protest lockdowns and protest your business being closed down on Main Street. But you could go ahead and protest, um, you know, and march in the streets for BLM after George Floyd. I mean, public health's problem is that they have been entirely political. Um, you know, I mean, the vaccine mandates were terrible. I mean, Dr. Cariotti lost his job. I mean, it, 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 it's incredible to me. I mean, there's, it, 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 and there's so many people lost their jobs, not just Dr. Cariotti, of course. So, yeah, I mean, it became political when public health took positions that were absolutely absurd and ridiculous. Um, Dr. Koch? Um, so, <clears throat> uh, the, if you look backwards, uh, there were people who said early treatment was the fastest, safest, and cheapest way to end the pandemic. Uh, and we said that very early on. 
And if you look backwards, uh, that is still 100% true today as it was in the very beginning. We didn't need to do any of these things. We didn't need to do the vaccination program, the masks, the lockdowns, social distancing. We didn't need any of those things. We had early treatments that were available as early as March of 2020. The Fareed and Tyson protocol for ex- it just is one example of that. They've treated over 15,000 patients with that protocol, and there's not been a hospitalization or death if the person got it shortly after, within days after uh, they From started having opinion, symptoms. What I've and seen throughout later, the pandemic <clears throat> is me, the lack of truth later than that, is because the desire to uh, remain Like full. the deaths are still zero. So the point is that we had a variety of treatments. I mean, even if you just had vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and you did nasal washes, we would have reduced the rate of this, the the, uh, the death rate and hospitalization rate by at least 90%, if not more. So we had all the tools that could have, and we, we've known about these for years, and we've had all the tools, and they were just ignored by the NIH because they didn't want to have a treatment for COVID so that they could approve these vaccines because that is what Fauci wanted. That's now, okay. that, that yeah. last part is, is an opinion, but the, the first part is factual in terms of these early treatments work, and you can go to uh, c19early.com, uh, and you can look at all of these early treatments, and the data on, on these uh, treatments is, is quite stunning. And, and the doctors that had promoted these treatments were totally ignored by the NIH. They wouldn't even return their phone calls. And the other big mistake is the, is the censorship and the lack of debates. None of these health officials would be held accountable and and anytime you have people who are, who think they're above accountability by their peers, you need, need to run the other way instead of following their decisions. So go to Joanna then then Dr. Danish. Thank you. Um, I just I want to I want to say um, a couple of things as far as um, what would we change in response to. Uh, uh, to COVID-19, um, looking back, I, I would agree with Eugene first about this being so heavily politicized. I think that that was to the detriment, ultimately, of the American people. Um, I think that removing, finding finding a way to remove a conflict of interest um, that may exist uh, among, among different entities, I think that finding a, a feasible way in order to achieve that is something that is it remains active um we need to be able to address this and um and then third uh i i think it's really really important to consider uh the continued risk moving ahead um how do we protect the american people um in the future against biowarfare. God forbid this happens again, um, whether it's in the form of significant microbial shift or drift um, or at, at the very worst, deliberate biowarfare. And how do we how do we guarantee um, the the buy in of the public um, in the event that that this sort of thing happens again? Because it did happen in a very real way and it and it changed over time. Um, and, and in part, that was, I, I believe, in response to the vaccine. Um, but, but there are other factors, certainly, to consider. Um, but that's, that's uh, what I wanted to, uh, to add. Doctor, thanks, Joanna. Dr. Dinesh? Yeah, thanks, Mario. So, you know, um, I just wanted to, you know, I was trying to get up earlier, so I wanted to readdress uh, 
Some of your the mic is a bit. Uh, your, your mic is a bit low. If you don't mind getting it closer to your mouth, maybe. Yeah. Can you hear me better now? Uh, still a bit low. We can hear you, but it's not great. Not sure if you can fix it somehow. Okay. Can you hear me better now? It's perfect. Yeah. Yes. Thank so you. I just wanted to kind of uh, address the levels of evidence conversation and the conflict of interest conversation. So is there any doubt that there is incredible amounts of corruption in academia? Absolutely not. I think most people, most clinicians uh, will agree that there's some level of corruption. I will say the peer review process leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, uh, everybody knows about a reviewer too, at least in the healthcare space, about how completely messed up it is and how arbitrary it is and how grant funding and other things do drive a lot of that process. I will say that if we don't have our current process of levels of evidence, then we truly have nothing that we can believe. And all evidence isn't created equal. And one of the biggest challenges that we're facing that we have come out of this pandemic from is that anybody can spout out with significant confidence, a significant amount of uh, uh, a significant amount of quote unquote evidence that may or may not be true, and then you have to actually go into the data and evaluate it because people are able to just say, "Hey, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to speak to a specific speaker here, but people are saying just things that we know clinically are just not true, right?" And and it's really hard. It's my data versus your data. It's my conflicts versus your conflicts. It's my zeal and religion of, of medicine, whatever I want to believe versus yours. And so I think having a deeper conversation around how do we go back to the most basic level of our peer reviewed process, our scientific data process, obviously the easiest first place to start is open sourcing the data itself and allowing people. And I think that's really where things are going to go. It has to go for us to survive that we have to now I provide our data as evidence to prove that what we're saying actually came from the right place. I think the, the concept that, you know, pharmaceutical companies are completely driving where peer-reviewed process is going, I, I actually don't believe that's true. I think it's a lot more about what other people... That, 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 that's, a, that's the next question, Dr. Dinesh. I'll, I'll ask you that question again because I know you, you couldn't jump in earlier. You've been trying to jump in for a while. But the, the question, and I'm, uh, these questions could be a bit, uh, you know, some would consider, you know, alternative theories or conspiracy theories. We won't go too extreme, but we've got one here. A, is there evidence that pharmaceutical companies fake data to order in order to sell products? And if not, why is that so, you know, why is that a theory that's believed by many? So, Do you want to kick it off, Dr. Denise? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what was said earlier is incredibly important, which is obviously there is room for more third party evaluation that removes that conflict of interest. There's, there's clearly room for that. Do I think, that uh, that the pharmaceutical companies are out there trying to look out for their best interests and looking at studies that, again, only prove their point? Sure. Most businesses do that. It's unfortunate this is the business of healthcare, but that's clearly what's going to happen. What is incredibly surprising has been that a lot of those studies have been backed up by other third-party healthcare institutions that really did not have, unless you look at a long road to trying to find a conflict of interest did not truly have conflict of interest. It's been done by the study. Eugene just mentioned the study from Israel. That is a very high quality study uh, with, you know, millions of people. And so I, I think that ultimately we're seeing some of this bear out, but we all know that the, 
the 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 story is still yet to be written and the one one sorry one thing i wanted to mention around sort of why what we have struggled with throughout this process is that the the data that we collected on the virus that we had in 2020 just is not as relevant today for example long covid has been around since the beginning of the pandemic and we still don't know how the changing of the variants is affecting our rates of long COVID. Why are people not looking into this, right? The variants are changing. So trying to make judgments from studies that occurred earlier in the pandemic and using that to make policy decisions today is also incredibly challenging. So going back to your first question around what have we, you know, what have we learned? What will we change? We have to be honest about the fact that just because your point becomes realistic now doesn't mean it was actually true then. And that we really do have to go back to the core of how we do evidence. And maybe we don't believe evidence that comes out of pharmaceutical companies directly, and we have to verify it with a third party. That's probably where we're going to go. And I don't think that the FDA has its, its hands clean from this. There's clearly conflict of interest, even at the FDA. Here's a first step toward that. Um, and this would, this would involve um, simply removing the liability immunity that pharmaceutical companies currently enjoy under federal law only for vaccines. So if Pfizer gets a new drug approved and there's post-marketing problems, uh, then the, the individuals who are injured by those drugs can turn around and seek compensation from the pharmaceutical company. The companies know this, and the companies know how to do rigorous clinical trials. Pfizer knows how to do a rigorous clinical trial adequately powered to pick up safety problems. And they do that for their drugs generally. And they do that for their drugs generally because they're held accountable for what happens when that drug goes to market. But Congress decided on the on the pretense, or they accepted the argument from pharma, that vaccines were insufficiently profitable for pharmaceutical companies to develop them unless they could be shielded from all liability for the safety problems for their, their vaccines. I, I find that argument incredible now, given that the COVID vaccines were a $100 billion industry in their first year alone. But that's the argument that Congress accepted many years ago when it put this law in place. So imagine a car company. Imagine, let's just take Ford or Toyota. Uh, imagine the federal government saying, you're responsible for safety problems with your vehicles. You know, if your car gets in a fender bender and blows up, you know, the, the, the person who's killed in that kind of accident can sue you. Or if your seatbelt malfunctions, you're, you're liable for that. Except for your minivans, right? Your minivans are shielded from all liability. You know, ask yourself as a consumer, would you trust Toyota's minivan? Would you, you know, would people, would people be buying the car that's singled out for the special treatment? So we know that these companies are profit oriented. We can't fault them for that. We know that the responsibility is to increase the profits for shareholders. We can't fault them for that. That's why we set up regulatory agencies uh, to make sure that the drugs that are approved are safe and efficacious. And that's why we uh, that's why we hold companies accountable for the harms that are done. So I think we would take a gigantic leap forward in vaccine safety if we simply said, uh, you know, you're liable in the same way that you would be liable for a new medication. The, the companies would behave differently in their clinical trials of these vaccines and in their post-marketing surveillance of these vaccines. 
Uh, and, you know, one more point about the FDA, because most Americans also don't realize that now a majority of the FDA's funding comes from pharmaceutical companies. So the FDA is the real gatekeeper among the three letter agencies when it comes to public health. NIH funds research. CDC makes public health recommendations. FDA approves new products. Okay. Most of the FDA's budget now, north of 60% of the FDA's budget, comes from fees paid by pharmaceutical companies to expedite the approval process. Uh, And again, this is a shift that's occurred over the last several years that does not require a tinfoil hat. Um, It does not require conspiracy. It just requires following the money to identify the ways in which these agencies maybe swayed or biased or compromised uh, in terms of the way the funding flows to them. The revolving door between FDA and industry is also, uh, you know, a major issue that there's no tail on the contract that after you leave the FDA uh, before you go to work for pharma. So there's a kind of mutual backscratching process that's now been well-documented. Nine of the last 10 FDA commissioners, the head of the FDA, have gone immediately to work for pharmaceutical companies. And the 10th and the one went immediately to work for a consultant company to big pharma. And, you know, they don't make very much money while they're working for the government. And then they get a big payoff uh, being on the board of, of Pfizer. And, you know, this, re- this requires um, that uh, if they're going to get that pay- payout, uh, just – I'm, I'm not calling into question the integrity of any of these people. I'm just talking about human nature. Con- this is why con- we con- shield con- against Exactly. Anyone would fall prey to an It's not industry. about individuals. No, it's not at all. It's not about all the academics are morally compromised. It's about we, we disclose and where possible we remove conflicts of interest because unconsciously, consciously, in all kinds of subtle ways, this has an influence and it's been well studied. It's been well documented on the aggregate level, the way that conflicts of interest compromise or bias various uh, research I, I love, uh, or other products. Aaron, I'd love Eugene before going to Steve. Eugene, did you want to respond to the, to the conflict of interest that Aaron mentioned? Yeah, definitely. So um, I think everyone can agree that no system is going to be perfect, uh, especially even, you know, the, biggest, most prestigious journals like New England Journal, Science, Nature, they're, they're not without controversy uh, in the past. You know, everyone, I think a lot of us physicians have heard of Piero and Versa, you know, who uh, had discredited stem cell research. Um, there was also Anil Patti from my alma mater at, at Duke, who, you know, faked a bunch of cancer research and got it published in New England Journal, Science, Nature, what have you. Um, but just because there are you know, snafus and nothing is perfect, it doesn't mean we completely discredit it. And right now, I think the best system that we have are these high-powered studies in these, you know, prestigious New England Journal, um, Science, Nature journals, because what is the alternative? Do we just go with whatever study that we subjectively believe is true? That gets us on a slippery slope as well. Fair point, Steve. Uh, yeah, um, so, uh, so Eugene, uh, first of all, um, I'm wondering if we can have a one-on-one uh, debate where we can talk about uh, these issues uh, in depth, because uh, I would love to uh, go through this with you, because I think that if you uh, hear the evidence that uh, that I have uh, collected 
over the past year that you would be convinced that what you just said and other things that you've said is um, you, you may uh, change your belief system. Would you be willing to go one-on-one with me in a public debate on this? Yeah, sure. Um, just tell me the time and forum. Awesome. So if you could follow me, then I'll, I'll just <clears throat> I'll DM you on, on Twitter. Sounds good. Uh, so, so to respond to that specific point here, uh, let's say uh, you just said, well, we should trust these large. They're not perfect, uh, but these large trials, we should would trust them. And I, I couldn't disagree with that um, more. Um, when, when we look at, at the Pfizer study, which the world is depending on, there are so many things wrong with that study that anyone can see. It's in plain sight. And yet we're, we're silent a, a, a about this. And, you know, people aren't looking at, at these flaws. Um, you know, for example, and, and I could spend the next hour, and I'm not going to do that, of course, but I could spend the next hour going through uh, at least 30 uh, problems with this trial that shows that this is not just a, well, there are going to be a little few errors uh, in, in these trials. This is deliberate fraud uh, that's happening. So, for example, let's start off with Pfizer admitting in a U.S. court proceeding that there was fraud and the FDA knew about it. Therefore, it's not fraud. They, that was their pleading in federal court. Okay, number two, 13-year-old Maddie DeGuerre developed paralysis less than 24 hours after she was vaccinated. She's now in a wheelchair and, and on her way to becoming a quadriplegic. I talked to the FDA about that, and Janet Woodcock promised to investigate this. They never called the family. Brooke Jackson, she complained to the FDA about serious fraud in the Pfizer trial. You know what happened? Less than, on the same day, she was fired from her job after making a confidential complaint to the FDA about clinical trial fraud. She's fired. There were five times as many exclusions in the treatment arm as in the placebo arm of the trial. This is this was documented on page 18th of the December 10th, 2020 Verbeck meeting document, and it shows an, un, an a, a inexplicable uh, 311 people were excluded in the the vaccine arm versus 60 in the placebo arm. Now, how can you do that if it's truly double-blind, randomized trial? Brooke Jackson saw okay. at least eight cases of of anaphylaxis. The drug company reported zero. Okay, so we're not talking about minor errors here. We're talking about serious fraud that goes uninvestigated. And I can go on and on. Yeah, Steve, I think I I, want to take you on the offer to organize a debate and get panelists on both sides regarding the the points that you're mentioning. But Eugene, did you want to quickly respond before we go to to the next panelist? Um, Yeah, I can quickly respond. Um, So you, you mentioned a lot of kind of subjective criticisms of of these like studies but you have when when it comes to examining the the current literature we have to take a look at all the articles and and weigh the ones that have the most evidence right and and to me the most evidence i i'll circle back to this again is the high-powered studies that have millions of patients um, that smooths out all the variants rob hi my name is rob um, I started a group on Facebook 
called COVID vaccine side effects. Um, it quickly grew to about 150,000 followers. And the reason that I started that group was because I didn't really trust what I was hearing about the vaccines. So I kind of wanted to get uh, a firsthand account of uh, from as many people as possible before I made my decision. This was way back when the vaccines first rolled out um, to make my decision. So, to so vaccine. Just quickly, Rob, before, before you continue, you've got a bit of background noise around you, not too loud. So if you could just prevent that would be great. Uh, so you said that you wanted to know, you wanted to get more uh, data on, on, on side effects of the vaccine and you created a group with 150,000 members. Yeah, well, that ended up with 150,000 members. Yes, it uh, it quickly grew to 150,000 members within about three or four months. Eventually, the group did get shut down because of uh, um, like every uh, it was it was again censorship. It was uh, um, you know the powers to be were worried about misinformation. And uh, but what I did is after a while, like after it started to grow to five to ten thousand people, I realized that there's no way I was able to administrate the group on my own. So I started watching people's comments in the group. And what I would do is I would I would uh, message people who had a very um, like very detailed uh, um descriptions of what was going on when when a piece of information came in that I didn't know whether it was true or false and then so I I wound up assembling a team there was about 40 people at its height of administrators and they ranged all the way from I had one guy he was a pharmaceutical engineer to epidemiologists virologists a whole there uh, some people were just uh, they were just uh, um, like in in nursing but which uh, you know there's a lot to that field but um, I had a very diverse group of people that would, and we would see a point of misinformation and we would discuss it. And the people who were in, uh, like, say, a person who was an epidemiologist would pipe up and say, okay, no, that's absolutely not true at all. Um, they would, uh, so we had a really diverse group that could, uh, could uh, combat the misinformation and what we were trying to do was instead of silencing people what what i wanted to do is i wanted to um i wanted to combat the misinformation and leave it displayed so that it shows the point of misinformation then it shows the rebuttal and leave it up so that people that read through um, after that could see, hey, okay, well, I believe that this was true. And now look, you know, it shows that that was indeed false. So um, what, uh, and what ended up happening is the group wound up imploding because there was partially infighting and, and partially they, they wanted us just to delete misinformation that was put out. But uh, um, going what what I wanted to get to was uh, Joanna's point that uh, um, you know there's a lot of very um, very well educated people on this space, but she pointed out that I think there's a lack of people who are uh, in the know in epidemiology and virology, which are like those those practices alone are so complex that a person has to devote most of their career to studying it to get a broad understanding of it. So there's, uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, um, a lot of, uh, uh, um, like a, a lack of 
a, f- a full understanding, even with people who are very, very well educated. Because and, I would and your, say, from, from your experiment, Rob, just from your experiment, it, one point I got is that instead of silencing the people that were spreading information that wasn't accurate, um, and obviously it's difficult to determine what is and what isn't accurate, but yes. what you're saying is that is a better way to deal with it, and I think everyone would agree, is, is not silence it, but instead have display those discussions it. like the one we've had, display it, address yep. it, and let the, yes. the audience decide. Uh, yes, let the audience decide, but make sure that we figure out a way to engage people who are uh, like, if it has to do with, uh, and again, I'm I'm not educated in, in any way in the medical field. Um, that's, that is why I started that group is because I was like, okay, well, I don't necessarily trust everything that the media puts out. I don't necessarily trust everything the government puts out because, and not because I think that there are a bunch of sinister, um, you know, groups that, uh, you know, there's not, I don't feel that there's this big, um, this group of people that control everything. What I feel is that we live in a democratic society where the person who, is most convincing is the person that is elected to make these decisions. It does, they're not necessarily the most qualified and then they follow what they're told. And then what I also found in the group, in my group, it kind of mirrors what I saw, I've seen in the, in government is they go to, okay, well, the majority of the population, it's too complicated to explain this to them and get them to understand it. So maybe we should omit this or just give them a simple explanation and say, you know, like for instance, the, the very first was the, the vaccine is safe and 100% effective at reducing transmission. So, and it sounds like they're saying that, oh, the vaccine is 100% safe. That's what, you know, that's what most, most common or most, most people would understand from that statement. Mm-hmm. Whereas that statement was misleading to a point, but it was meant to get the most people to vaccinate possible to try and stop the transmission of the of the virus. Understood. Understood. I'll go. Yeah. I'll go. So, so I'm just going to go to John. John's been waiting for a while. Yeah. Um, just for the audience, just keep putting your questions in the bottom right corner. We'll try to address a few of them now. And then we'll do the next space. There's going to be a few series of spaces of balanced panel discussing all these questions and answering questions as well. So put your questions in the bottom right corner um, in that comment section uh, for the team to bring them up in this panel and the next panel. But we'll go to, to John. Appreciate you coming on, John. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, hey, Steve, how you doing? See you soon. <laughs> um, first of all, I don't think there are any medical examiners on this call. I would have liked to have seen or heard from some. Secondly, a difference between engineers and scientists. I think uh, good doctors are, are much like engineers doing failure analysis on the human body and fixing what's wrong that's right in front of them. Whereas bad doctors being scientists would say, well, let me find a paper on that. Hold on a few months or a year. Now, wait until a paper comes out on that before I treat you. Now, that, that's not very good. So good doctors, I equate to engineers. Regarding myocarditis, it dominated 90% of the conversation today, and it's 1% of the deaths that are happening in the circulatory system from the vaccine. Now, that's, that's really bad. There's two orders of magnitude lower. So everybody focusing on myocarditis is just the limited hangout of the, of the uh, FDA to admit that there's a little problem there. It's not a little problem. It's two orders of magnitude bigger than what they're saying. Uh, the elderly, um, well, 
they would likely die from myocarditis if they didn't die from something else first, something else being a heart attack or, or another circulatory system issue. And you can actually find a paper on this because I spent probably about an hour to an hour and a half talking to Claire Craig. I told her what my concerns are. Everybody's focused on myocarditis in the young. It's only happening in the young. Yeah, it would happen in the old if they weren't dead already. And uh, she said, oh, let me, let me look something up. So she sent me a paper on it. It turns out I was right. Uh, the, the other issues are presenting before myocarditis. It's just that in the young, they survive those issues. So again, it's two orders of magnitude greater. Um, then- Eugene, did you want to respond to that, to that point just before you continue, Rob? At the point of myocarditis um, not being a big enough issue um, uh, as part of the discussion? Yeah, I, would, um, I guess I would disagree with that because I think the most, most of the things that were talked about with uh, regard to vaccine side effects was one, anaphylaxis, and then two, myocarditis. And so that's the reason why probably a lot of panelists were talking about myocarditis. Um, there could be a lot of other side effects, too, that, that you could talk about. <laughs> it, it just wasn't as prominent um, you know, in the discussion in, in the media or among you know, physicians as, as a group. Yeah, so let, let, let me get to some of those other things, uh, like with five minutes to onset of symptoms, died in days, seven-year-old girl, 11-year-old boy, the same thing, boosted him, chest pain, heart, you know, chest pain, and then uh, trouble breathing, put him on a respirator, ventilator, he, uh, he died, and they, they went to donate his heart, it was full of clots, and then you have Eden, who was 17 years old, had a stroke, um, she would have been saved if they had investigated Brianna's stroke five weeks earlier at 30 years old, who would have been saved if they investigated Diane's stroke, 60, 62 years old. All these happened within five minutes on Saturday, I mean, maybe within an hour. If you read the, uh, the death, if uh, you read, any, no, no, any, I'm, I'm, any, any statistics on those numbers? I'm Go sorry, ahead. sorry. I didn't hear what you said. No, I was just asking, is it, in the, so you've given three examples, is there more statistics on, on how prevalent that was? Well, if if you look at my um, analysis of 460,000 death certificates in Massachusetts, about 60,000 per year, you'd understand that cardiac arrest has 2,700 excess deaths in the last 18 months alone in one state. And that's with very um, conservative uh, linear linear, uh, least squares approximation. Uh, you have cardiac arrhythmia, disseminated intravascular coagulation, acute post-hemorrhagic anemia, secondary thrombocytopenia, bone marrow cancer, lymph node cancer, B-cell lymphocytic leukemia. All of them have to do with the blood. All of them are up significantly. Now, not only are they up, but COVID is down while they're up. Respiratory deaths and pneumonia are down while they're up. It's an inverse relationship. It's positively correlated with the vaccine and negative, inversely correlated to COVID, so it's not COVID. Um, you know, you, you can go and, and look at my articles. You can read the research I've presented to thousands of doctors and lawyers by now, and researchers. Um, CHD has an article. Uh, they have. Uh, there's also a longer video and a shorter video. So there are patterns that are being missed. I, I really don't understand the world of epidemiology. I'm an, I'm an electrical engineer. And we think in terms of uh, frequency domain, we think in terms of carrier waves. So everybody here can understand what a sine wave is. <clears throat> now, you can take a sine wave, which looks exactly like the average temperature in the northern climates. It's also the deaths per, per day on a daily basis. If you look at it, it goes up and down. It's down in the summer, up in the winter, always the same pattern. 
Now, if you take that, that wave and you just elevate it, that means something linear came in, not seasonal. If it's a seasonal virus, all that happens to that wave is that the amplitude increases. So if you have a seasonal virus come in, you still have a sine wave. The amplitude goes up, and then it goes down a little bit and down a little bit again because it takes a couple of years for the uh, disease to peter out. But that's not what happened here. What happened here is an increasing linear signal that takes the sine wave and bends it up. So I, I, I've talked enough on this stuff. Um, you know, it's res ipsa locator. If you see people, um, you can read the death certificates and you can look at the data. Either one is going to come out. The vaccines are killing a lot of people. Uh, 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 John, I'll, I'll let uh, Eugene, if you, if you want to respond to John's point, because I, I know we're, we're a bit over time for the space. So it's a fair point. And John, I'd love to invite you for the next space. We'll organize a, a panel again, a balanced panel, and to bring those points up. Uh, but Eugene, I'll, I'll give you the mic to you. Yeah, sure. Um, I think there's a lot of discussion about anecdotal evidence, like, you know, individual stories of, of patients being harmed. And uh, if you take a look at the overall big picture data, the the incidence of vaccine, you know, side effects are extremely, extremely low, at least according to the highest powered studies um, in, in the most reputable journals. And as physicians, I think it's our duty to take a look at the entire body of evidence not just pick and choose what narrative we want to see, right? Because our, our, our first and foremost duty is to our patients and to educate them about the benefits and risks of any kind of intervention, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's a surgical procedure, and we have to take a look at what is the best available evidence out there. And, you know, there could be a little bit of disagreement between myself and the other panelists here, but I believe that based on the best available evidence, vaccine side effects are extremely low and the benefits of the COVID vaccine definitely outweigh the risks for most patients. I'll go to Dr. And, and I know we went a bit over time in Dr. Nathi and uh, Sphinx, Brian, Charles, you came in last minute. I appreciate you being here. So we'll DM you all to bring you up for the next panel uh, that we'll organize because um, we, we went a bit over time. But I'll, I'll give you the mic, uh, Dr. Mdala. Mdladla, sorry, sorry for mispronouncing your name. Yeah, you pronounced that very well. And I'm happy to join the next panel because I actually have uh, quite a bit more to say. Um, I'll try and touch on a few uh, points on this particular platform. And um, I mean, the initial discussion is obviously on a debate on COVID without censorship. And, uh, and I think at the latter end of the discussion, everybody's been caught on vaccines and not just a discussion about COVID. And, uh, and, um, I've written a few things on the platform already um, about my take on the whole situation. And that's the fact that, especially from the USA or from North America, is that you guys are missing out on a good control group to compare for what you're doing um, and making sense of it. Uh, because if you do not have a control group, which is actually what was killed for you, from lockdowns to vaccines and where you are now, is that you lack the control group. Uh, and you've looked to Africa and you looked to South Africa. So the benefit of South Africa is that we're actually a functional system with highly recognized uh, scientists um, that do a whole lot of work uh, that produce studies and results that can actually be comparable. Now, we actually have a picture that you can look at and actually say, is what we're doing really making sense or not making sense? 
Um, and it's a much deeper discussion. And uh, for your next platform, I actually like to partake in that. And uh, yeah, so I think, for... I think, Doctor, 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 just to let you know for the next panel, what we'll do is we'll DM you and get all those points organized, so we can prep in advance as we did for this one. So we have the we had prep pa- panelists and points no uh, covered like in this panel. So, so I really appreciate you coming on. Mar- Mar- very Mario, this is actually Mario. Give me ten seconds because this is vital because all what he just said is important. But we need open source science, and the blockchain can deliver that. And I've been talking to the companies at the forefront of this. And what we have now is a very closed system where it's uh, perish or publish. And we have uh, from submission to publish, no one sees what's going on in the blockchain. And decentralization will allow for the entire process to be transparent to everyone. And what we're doing or what they are doing is incredible in the sense that we are now um, promoting or incentivizing people to even publish uh, studies that uh, their hypotheses turned out to be incorrect. This is what the industry needs. This is what peer review needs. Um, so I would really like to discuss this at some point. Thank you. Yeah, I agree, Sphinx, and that's something I think we brought up. I think you brought up in the previous space, decentralizing the entire process, and that should hopefully that transparency should hopefully solve some of the biases we saw earlier that happens behind the scenes. Um, maybe Eugene, I'll let you respond very briefly um, to Doctor uh, Nathy. Sure. I know it's not no questions asked, uh, but yes, mainly just respond quickly because we're going to discuss it in the next panel and get it done in advance. Sure. Uh, is a question about the blockchain and open source? Uh, no. So, so, so in terms of getting it, so Dr. Nathy, the point that you've made uh, relating to South Africa, do you want to summarize it very briefly to Eugene so he can quickly respond before we wrap up the space? No, no. All I was saying was that there's other perspectives available elsewhere um, that but actually what... provide control groups to the rest of the world and for the USA for that matter. And for example, South Africa, Right now, we actually do not follow lockdowns to the exact T as maybe the U.S. and other developed nations did, except for Sweden. Uh, secondarily, we do not take up the vaccine as much as the USA has done in other developed nations. And if you look at our mortality, the excess mortality, mm-hmm. and especially vaccine-related injuries, uh, the rate of those, it is so much lower than those countries that there needs to be a, a differential comparison using those artificial control groups. The problem was that with the developed nations, because everybody was so scared and everybody wanted to follow what was happening and everybody did what they were told to do, is that they lost a control group. And that was the So the, you're saying that the threat. control groups, is, is, so, so, so data from South Africa was ignored by other countries. Is that your, your, uh, the it's point that you're making? It's ignored and it's available out there and nobody wants to actually have a look at it. And it's not just South Africa. Why, why, do you think, why, do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think that is, doctor? Well, it's because it's telling a different story. You must remember that South Africa especially. So South Africa is probably the most developed nation in sub-Saharan Africa. And we were, in a, in a way, captured. We got funding from the IMFW, uh, the World Bank, and other funds. We actually pushed the exact thing that was happening in the rest of the world, forced lockdowns, forced NPIs, and the vaccines. The population, though, because of the experience maybe from the past and the experiences from the past with HIV and so on, decided to interpret whatever was happening to them based on what mm. they knew from before. And we did not do those things long yeah. And as Obviously. a result, people did what they think was necessary or what they think believed in. And as a result, we actually have produced a control group 
that it, that goes against what we no, have. I, I, yeah. yeah. I understand. Understand the point, doctor. So yeah. So Eugene, I'll let you and respond. And that data, yeah, is kind of going over time. Um, so I'll need to look into more about the South African data. But the one point I would like to make is it is important to take a look at all the countries internationally and, and look at all the available data, not just, you know, in Europe and the United States and Israel, but, but all around the world. And I think that's something we can all agree on, that it's important to take a look at populations in South Africa, in, in Thailand, in Asia, in, in you know, France, United States, wherever it is. Um, and so that we can have the most complete picture of what's going on. I agree. Um, so I just want to just thank all the panelists. I also want to thank Dr. Drew, who helped moderate the panel earlier. Um, Steve, appreciate you being here from the early stages. Uh, Lindsay, Texas Lindsay, for helping us organize the panel. Um, also want to give a shout out to others that are organizing similar panels. I saw Grant Cardone, Tara Bull do similar panels with other doctors that I highly recommend you check them out. But otherwise, you'll be organizing another panel. So there'll be the, the Fauci files dropping any day. It'll probably be next week, according to Elon. Um, and we'll be covering those live as usual as soon as they drop. Otherwise, we'll be organizing the next panel uh, in a week or so. Um, as you know, we try to keep it as balanced as possible to have both sides covered and have all the points prepared in advance. So we'll do that again for next week. I think this one went great. Um, we have a lot of questions from the audience, a lot of questions that weren't answered. Um, so we'll make sure in the next panel, we'll go through the questions. That will be the focus. Audience questions that will have all the doctors on stage uh, respond to those questions. Otherwise, again, massive shout out to Dr. Drew for helping me moderate the panel. Um, Eugene, thank you a lot for um, helping balance it out because we had a few other doctors that couldn't come up earlier. So appreciate you and appreciate all the other doctors and panelists. Thank you so much everyone and we'll see you in a few days time hopefully not before new year's eve thanks everyone right, Bye, thanks everyone. everybody thanks thanks everyone